0: Utopia, Jeremy Vaney here, and if you hear that creepy musical bed underneath my voice, that means I'm going to try to sell you my new book, Urgency! What is Urgency? It is a spiritual mashup of all the answers to all the questions you've ever had about anything ever. Just about. In the attempts to get your brain to shut up, in the attempts for there to be silence, in the attempts for something new to happen in the body. What is that? Do it and find out. What are you supposed to be doing? Nothing. There's nothing to do. It's a paradox. You're just supposed to be. But how can you be if you're doing? So I'm trying to get the doing part of your brain to shut up so that you can just be. And then something about the Beatles. All right. If you live in the United States, you can, of course, get this book through Amazon.com. If you live outside the United States, you can get this book through our homepage at paratopia.net if you look to the right you see shop you see underneath shop urgency bookstore that is your portal to my success so there you go if you live outside the u.s i mean this was a problem i had with my dvd and my first book which is uh how to sell them outside the u.s well this is the way In other news, Jeff and I would like to thank you, thank you, thank you, all listeners for making us number five at Cyberears.com. Cyberears is our amazing, excellent podcast host site that we advertise weekly here, and we moved to them not too terribly long ago. And of course, when we first got there, we didn't even register a blip on their radar. And then a few months later, we were number six. (laughs) in their top 10 of not just podcasts but podcasts and musical casts all casts and now we are number 5 so we're still climbing the ranks there um, which is amazing I mean who to thunk a little paranormal podcast with zero advertising would work its way to the top of the charts of all things considered on cyberears.com. we have you to thank for that so thank you thank you thank you and thank you all the new people who uh, must be tuning in and sticking with us and if you'll indulge me one more cell, there's no better time to subscribe to Paratopia than now. We've got our next issue of Paratopia magazine coming out soon. We've got, of course, a backlog of the extended versions of shows, a nice little archive. We've got some special freebie treats in there. Everybody likes treats. I know I do. I know dogs do. And I know dogs are man's best friend. I don't know what any of that has to do with anything. Anyway, uh, so feel free to subscribe. It's super cheap. It's only four fifty a month. This is cheaper than a lot of the other premium podcasts. And as you know, because you've stuck with us, uh, you like us better anyway. So there's really no reason to hesitate, except that the market hasn't picked up yet here in the United States and uh, probably elsewhere in the world. But um, but that's not about to happen anytime soon. So you can't really wait for that, right? What do you gotta do, eat? No! 450. Peritopia.net. And now on to the program. Peritopia, Jeremy Vaney here. Jeff Ritzman here. And you're listening to another episode of yourself, Peritopia. Tonight's guest is Christopher Balzano. He is uh well. He's a paranormal investigator. And a
1: hell of a swell guy.
0: Hell of a swell guy. Podcaster, I believe, or radio show host. Radio show host or podcaster? I should probably know that. I think he edits the ghostvillage.com news, right? He's, he's like all over the place.
1: He is. Super involved.
0: Super involved. Uh, you can have a go to uh, masscrossroads.com, uh, and that would be the portal to all things Christopher Balzano. But tonight we will be discussing Darkwoods cult crime and paranormal in the freetown state forest that would be freetown massachusetts uh somewhat near my home in the bridgewater triangle jeff i got to start like building myself up as a dude who is like a product of this paranormal portal
1: yeah you go for that <laughs> that suits you well
0: <sighs> if i were smart at all i would attach myself immediately to this whole bridgewater triangle phenomenon
1: yeah well, as, uh, as our old friend Terrence would say, this episode is full of weird shit. Yes. Yeah. And so therefore, if you're coming from that area, what must that say about you?
0: And <laughs> uh, Paratopia, I thought that when we started uttering the word fairy on this show, that would be sort of the bottom rung on the ladder of paranormal stuff. But no, I believe we've taken it a step lower. And in this episode, we talk about zombies a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's also another one that uh we won't bring up at present moment, but we will be discussing in depth after the show.
0: <laughs> Is that Puckwedgy? Ah. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, might as well be Mogwai. <laughs> Actually, it sounds an awful lot like uh like uh, 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 the thing the the little gnome troll thing from Cat's Eye with Drew Barrymore. Remember Never that? saw it. Never saw that. Hmm. Yeah. Well in any event um yeah, let's uh let's get to it because we've got a lot of show. A lot of show. And it goes all over the place. It's one of my favorites in recent memory. Yeah, it it's good Yeah. You agree? Yeah,
1: yeah. it's
0: good. Yeah. Good, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 good show. Yeah. Good episode. good, show. good yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: Hmm? yeah. yeah. Good, guess. Good, guess. good guess. Yeah. Christopher Balzano. <laughs> Paratopia, without further ado, please welcome our very special guest, Christopher. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming on the show and talking about Dark Woods. Thank you very much for having me on. I grew up in Massachusetts, mostly in Taunton, uh, so when I read Dark Woods, it was, it was good to see that Taunton State Hospital is one of the most haunted locations in all of Massachusetts. Good to know. Uh, that was right up the street from me. What's interesting is I didn't know about all of this uh, paranormal activity in Massachusetts growing up because I wasn't really into ghosts and and all that other stuff, but I'd had my own, what I considered alien abduction experiences. So, uh, I just sort of concentrated on that stuff, but little did I know, you know, the Bridgewater triangle, uh, Freetown state forest, you know, all of this sort of stuff is going on around me. Uh, and as I'm reading your book, it dawns on me that there's an awful lot of stuff going on around you. I mean Great. almost Great. too much, Great. right? Like what so what what do you make of that? I guess how about I start off this way. I'll ask you for those who don't know, Freetown State Forest is one of those sort of paranormal haunted locations that has like I said all sorts of stuff happening, not unlike what uh Ted Phillips has described, not unlike what Phil Bragno has described uh in the various areas that they've researched. Has it always been this way? Uh even prior to Europeans settling there? Or is there always this much paranormal activity of this sort of varied type going on around there?
2: Well, I think the, the paranormal activity and, and that activity, you know, extends itself to uh cryptozoological reports, it extends itself to UFO reports. There's a kind of a hodgepodge of everything that can possibly that's unexplained, uh, that's on your mind, finds itself into the Bridgewater Triangle, of which Freetown is one of the well, original apexes, kind of laid out by Lauren Coleman, and um, what what I discovered was that there is a ton of stuff going on there that's both spoken and unspoken. Um, but that activity is really kind of the um, the spark or the the known thing or the thing that people can actually see of a lot of unusual energy that seems to exist in that location. Um, and so it's kind of the it's it's the evidence we have that something is kind of a miss in that area, Um, and that's why it takes kind of so many different forms and so many different manifestations. Um, But there was something underlining that was off, um, that was sensed as being off, that was felt as being off, that was experienced as being off, um, that is well-documented by the Native Americans that were living in that area. Um, They didn't like it. Uh, What is, uh, when Lauren Coleman laid out his Bridgewater Triangle... He named Hakamok Swamp as kind of the center, and it geographically is the center of the triangle that he established. Um, And that, you know, that has been translated kind of various ways, but always has something to do with the spirits. So whether it's dark spirit, dark place, place where evil lies, place where the devil roams, all these kind of different translations of what Hakamok means, um, they definitely, it was a place that they didn't like. And it also was a place when, when Freetown gets established, uh... In the in the mid 1600s, it's a place they didn't mind losing to the to the colonists. um... You know, it was a purchase, a huge tract of land, a lot of which is now the Bridgewater Triangle. Um, they gave up, and they gave up. And, and then when the settlers got there, they didn't even really want it either. It was kind of like one of those places they decided to put aside because land is valuable, but we're not going to go there right now. um... So it definitely is something that stretches back, not decades, not a hundred years, but you're talking at least five hundred years of. Of of stories and legends that are coming out of this area.
0: Well, let me just ask you, in terms of a triangle, uh, and Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but when we had Jacques Vallée on, we asked him about haunted locations like that. Uh, His take on it was, pretty much, you throw a dart at a map and you draw a shape around it, and you can (laughs) pretty much find a paranormal hotspot anywhere you look. Uh, Do you find that to be the case? I mean, do you really think that there is a triangulated area of something spectacular, or do you think Lauren Coleman could have called anything a triangle.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think that what, what happened was when Lauren Coleman first started talking about it, he was taking the, the three different Bridgewaters. That so would be Bridgewater, East Bridgewater, and West Bridgewater, which formed a natural three and a natural triangle. And then he kind of started branching out. So Bridgewater actually isn't even one of the apexes of the triangle. He went back into Abington where he was getting reports. He went out to Rehoboth where he was getting reports. And then he went out to Freetown, which, when I questioned him about it, he said, I heard there's a lot of really weird stuff going on there. He didn't really document anything in Freetown. And that was kind of good for him. Um, But for me, as I started doing the research, I kind of took that template, and that word template's his word, not mine, um, and kind of expanded it because it's not a triangle. Instead, it seems to be this area which, um, in, in many ways, you can kind of go to one town over uh, and the activity is very different. And Then you go to the town that is within an area now known as the Bridgewater Triangle, which isn't a triangle, and the activity is different. And and the difference is is something like this: um, if you go to any town in America, there's paranormal activity, and the the nature of that paranormal activity, for the most part, is not harmful. Um, there might be a dark tinge to it, but most of that dark tinge comes from the fact that. Things are happening that shouldn't. There's nothing inherently wrong or bad or tainted about it. Um, in a lot of places, you can say, all right, you know, that place is haunted right there. Two people were sitting down. Uh, there was an argument. One person shot another person. And now the ghost of the person who shot you know, remains there. And there's some kind of uh, diagnosable problem that might have been the spark of it. It's not like that in the Bridgewater Triangle. Instead, there seems to be like a dark cloud which hangs over the entire area and stretches out much further than Lauren Coleman originally documented. Um, that that makes you know ghostly activity happen, which makes weird things happen. But a lot of times there is no source to it, and it's, it's kind of the unexplained within the unexplained.
0: Do you know how many tribes swore off the area? Was it just one, or was it a bunch of them, Indian tribes?
2: Well, I mean, I think the, the Wampanoag is the main tribe that was in that area. Um, and there were many other tribes that were kind of involved in that, that had allied against them or, or with them at one time or another. But the Wampanoag is really the main, which was then, I believe, is an you know a, kind of a, uh, a the, the division of the Algonquin tribe. But it's really the, the Wampanoag, is, and what's interesting is um... you can actually draw that line to what was Wampanoag land or what was what, things that happened to the Wampanoag that didn't happen to other Native American tribes. For example, before the settlers arrived, the Wampanoag, who were within the, what is the Bridgewater Triangle area, uh, suffered horrible disease that decimated a third of their population. The Wampanoags that weren't in the Triangle suffered almost no casualties whatsoever, and tribes that were literally miles away also didn't suffer anything. So it seemed to be this direct, dark thing that happened just to those people who were within the Triangle.
0: And what was their explanation for this? They just sort of passed it off as bad energy and, and left it at that?
2: Well, you know, it, it's kind of you know, one of the original uh, explanations uh, were the puck wedgies, um, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point in a little bit more depth, but they were these kind of uh, troublemaker spirits that become um, much more deviant and much more evil, Um a lot of things that went wrong they would say oh, up because the Puckledgies were there the Puckledgies made this happen the Puckledgies made that happen um, the problem is that much of the the history of the wampanoag is tainted by christianity uh so of course things weren't written down and it's actually one of the great mysteries of the of the the Bridgewater triangle is the wampum belt which held their oral tradition which no longer exists or no longer is in the possession of anyone that we know of um, so a lot of it a lot of what their traditions were, are left to translations of the original Wampanoags who learned English, all of which were Christian. Uh, and so looking back, a lot of their, um, a lot of the negative things that happened, they lay blame to the devil, uh, or to demons, or things like that, which of course, they wouldn't have said back in the day, but as they kind of, their, their views were tainted, their, their kind of legends then reflected that. Their old legends became kind of these new Christian legends.
0: Do you think that the the crime and the the cult activity in the area comes from just the fact that it's a giant forest, or do you think, or do you know maybe even uh, that it comes from people understanding the history of the area, or do you think that it it really is they're magnetically drawn in some way to whatever the energy is in this place? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't. Think did people, people know about it beforehand? Know. I mean, was this was this a known thing that this was? Haunted land, uh, the Indians didn't like it, all of that. I mean, was that well-known, and then cults moved in as a result of that? Or can you trace that at all?
2: I mean, I think that, you know, the Wampanoag basically retreated out of that area. And, of, and of course, King Philips War and, and, and the horrible devastation that happened on both sides, both Native American and settlers, um, you know, pretty much destroyed the entire Wampanoag Nation. But what you find is most of them then kind of retreat to the Cape. Um, which was a much safer and nicer area, which, <laughs> quite honestly, is a much safer and nicer area anyway. Um, and, and so really kind of that part of their history, kind of, you know, what what they thought as this kind of transition was happening with, um, with settlers is kind of lost. You do know that it is written that they didn't like the area originally. Um, there was something dark, something unexplained about it. People who were settling in it were having bad things happen to them. And then, of course, those things just continue to happen. Um, and so I don't think that people and now, you know, flash forward 300 years to, uh, to when all, a lot of this uh, cult activity is happening or starting to happen in the forest. I don't think people made the leap. I think they were very much into their um, their kind of set ways that these are crimes that are happening, criminals have crimes, and criminals commit crimes, and it's just that, and there was no necessary, necessarily a connection made. mm mm-hmm. um, And as a matter of fact, the first people I originally talked to who were police officers who had kind of worked on these cases were very straightforward about, no, the reason why so much bad stuff happens is because of not only is it a great wooded area, you know, in a very vast wooded area, but it's very quick and very, very um, close to Boston, to Providence, to Brockton, to these areas, to Taunton, to these areas that have crime that are within them, that you can dispose of your kind of little evil deeds very quickly by driving forty five minutes, and all of a sudden you're in the middle
1: of
0: nowhere. Yeah, um, that, but- I mean, that, that makes sense. Except here's what's interesting: uh, when I was last home, um, I had dinner with my friend's parents, and his brother was there with his wife. And his brother, I was talking about your book actually, uh, and his brother said he used to work at a special needs school in Freetown, and he was warned, you know, at, at recess, don't bring the kids. Too far into the woods this way, or you'll end up at a nudist colony. And don't bring the kids too far that way, or you'll end up in Satanist territory. And he laughed and thought, "Well, that's got to be a joke." But they were like, "No, we're serious." After you know, after dark, don't go in the woods that way. Walking that way, whichever way it was, uh, or there were Satanists. Uh, so it, it, I mean, it seems to be an accepted thing, right? Or, or is that was that an anomaly, or is it an accepted thing in the town that oh yeah, there are Satanists in them there woods yeah i mean I think
2: that in interviewing people and and then i once I kind of discovered um fall the fall river and Freetown area and kind of started talking to people um kind of on the in on ground zero here uh they they were it was very much accepted that there were cults that existed in the forest and that there were tribes uh, there were different kind of groups of people and they weren't necessarily associated with each other and there was something um dark about them, but not necessarily something evil. It was either, oh, it's a bunch of kids, or, you know, oh yeah, groups find their way here, and they kind of shrugged it off, or, yeah, you know, even, you know, witches find their way out there, and we see people with robes. It was a very accepted thing that the forest had activity, still had activity, and, you know, had a darker, more serious cult history that was in the recent past. So people knew about it, even young people knew about um, you know, the kind of clearing of the and, and and the the, the way the police had kind of driven out what they thought were the really, really dangerous cults, but that there still were these hanger ons And and I remember uh, Alan Alves, who was kind of the main source for my um, the cult sections of my book, um, said to me that, you know, on one of the very first nights he was there, they were driving through the forest, there was a huge bonfire, he was wanting to get out, you know, and improve himself, and his partner kind of like went... Just relax, just relax. It's just a whole bunch of hippies out there burning stuff in the woods. don't worry' they don't, don't harm anybody and so there was always kind of this known thing for decades that different people were using the forest for different reasons and and that continues today
0: uh let me ask you, this is just sort of out of left field, but um I don't know. Do you follow Phil Imbrogno's work at all? Um no, okay, so part of what he talks about are in Hudson Valley these uh pre celtic what he what he believes are pre celtic stone structures. Some are giant stone walls, and and surrounding them are these, uh, I don't know what they would be, like stone buildings, basically, little stone chambers, essentially, with giant roofs, you know, slabs for the roof and all that. Do you have anything like that there? Are there structures like that that are uh, unknown where they come from, giant sort of, you know, miscellaneous stone structures? I'm just curious.
2: No, I mean, you don't, you find structures kind of um, outside the Triangle, uh, in different places in Massachusetts, so obviously they have America's Stonehenge uh up there in Hampstead, which is just over the border in in uh in New Hampshire, and you have like the Quabbin uh, Reservoir has uh these passageways that are built in stone that people can't identify where they come from. What you have uh in Freetown in that area, you have uh dayton Rock, which is uh a stone which by itself is not amazing that there's this giant stone. Except for the fact that, you know, it was found submerged when they kind of took it out because they were trying to, you know, go beyond it. Uh, they found that the writing that was submerged actually had all of this writing on it. The part of the rock had all this writing on it and they haven't been able to identify where this writing comes from. And it does come from, uh, most people agree that it does probably come from some sort of Europeans who were here long before Columbus. Uh, and of course, once that came out, everyone laid claim to it. And the the going, probably mainly because of the the large Portuguese population in that area and Portuguese speaking population in that area, have claimed it as you know early Portuguese settlers into the area. Um, but you don't find any real structures that are there now.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears and get into some of the weirdness in there, and then we'll see if we can't try to figure out. Make, make make hide nor hair of meaning from this, uh, and maybe we can't, but we'll try. I guess just give us some examples of I don't know, the the typical sort of thing that people encounter there or different types of things.
2: Sure, I mean, of course, like I said you know, the Freetown State Forest is part of the larger Bridgewater Triangle um, and within the Bridgewater Triangle and then you know, within Freetown, you do have uh centuries, if not dec- decades, and then kind of centuries, if you kind of read more into it, of very odd animals, um, of especially, you know, in that in that swamp area, um, gargantuan snakes, uh, birds that are the, the size of men, um, Bigfoot sightings all throughout the Bridgewater Triangle, uh, especially in the Bridgewater areas, and the Fall River areas have quite a few of it, too. Um, UFO sightings. And then of course kind of along with those things you have reports of black helicopters. You have um and, and then reports of zombies. Zombies seem to to some degree run rampant in the Bridgewater in the uh Freetown State Forest it was seen, based on a lot of reports I've gotten from people who have seen them, you know, in the seventies, in the eighties, in the nineties, uh, you know, as recently as three or four years ago. Um and then of course on top of all of that you have a lot of unexplained, ghostly type phenomena. Um and a lot of it, like I said, doesn't have an origin. It doesn't have a, a story that you can go back and say, ah, oh, this, this was the moment that someone died and now their spirit is haunting the place. A lot of it is like I, I compare it to trying to grab onto smoke. Um, you, you get the stories, you get the, um, the people who have their experiences, and it's often a very emotional experience, um, but you, you can't get evidence. You know, when I started doing this, there were a lot of, or there weren't a lot of people out there publishing kind of stuff on the Internet. You know, I began doing this in 1997, really focusing on the Bridgewater Triangle. And when I started my website, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of resources on what was going on there. And as soon as I put that out there, I started getting a ton of, ton of stories. And now it's kind of moved on to the next generation where people are doing a lot of research out in the field there. Um, And they they follow kind of the the ghost stories, and they they try to gather evidence, um, which I think is a lot like trying to figure out, trying to be a meteorologist by checking out where lightning hits. You know, you can maybe study that one area, then all of a sudden you realize, I have no idea what the weather is just by studying, you know, the impact of the lightning strike. I actually have to, you know, step back a little bit, do a little more research. Um, And so what I found was a lot of ghost stories that that are left with question marks at the end. And so you have to kind of just present the story and hope that people are interested enough that maybe they do the research themselves or maybe they share their experience. And, and like you were saying, trying to understand it, maybe if I put enough of these pieces together, um, I can kind of maybe see a, a bigger picture, which is you know what I try to, uh, to specialize in. But a lot of them don't have any any weight to them other than the story themselves. And I'll give you an example. There was a family who um, lived with or, you know, they lived with kind of friends of theirs. And they had lived with each other for years. They had always gotten along. And they started to rent a house. Uh, I believe it was in Bridgewater itself. But I might be mistaken. I think it actually might have been Pond. And almost immediately upon moving in, they started to have paranormal activity. And they started to see uh, these orbs very clear, like with their with the naked eye, not like on a photograph. They started to see these uh, shadowy figures out of the corner of their eye going in and out of the house. And all throughout the rooms. And, you know, they were kind of interested in it first, but what they started to realize with, with what they started to realize as they went on is that they <laughs> began to hate each other. Um, for no reason whatsoever, they started to have, uh, very dark thoughts about the other couples, and they were both kind of doing it simultaneously. Um, they started thinking that each other, they were all cheating on each other, uh, that the, the couples were sleeping with the other members of the, of the couple, the other couples that were there, um, and it became this very, violent hatred began to develop between them until eventually one family moved away, the other family couldn't kind of sustain the rent, until so they moved away. And then two or three years later, they were able to be like, well, what happened there? We, we, they had no explanation for, for why they had very quickly, and parallel with all this paranormal activity, had begun to really distrust each other and hate each other and, and actually have homicidal thoughts towards each other. And it wasn't until they were away from the Bridgewater Triangle they would look back and say, huh, well, what was going on with that? What's up with that? Um, And there's a lot of stories like that. So there are ghost stories, but then there's these weird energy stories that you really don't know what to do with.
0: Yeah, that's another sort of through line of the book is that there are these various pockets of places that are emotionally charged in different ways. Some make you feel sadness, some make you feel like leaping off a cliff. And what's interesting is, of all the places, the one place that nobody touches and nobody seems to feel uh, anything negative is the reservation, is that correct?
2: Um, I would probably say that that's you know um in recent years that's changed um oh. now, I don't know whether that has more to do with uh especially since the book's been published, more people have investigated there um so it's really hard to uh, it it was when I was doing my research, the reservation seemed to be a much quieter place um it seemed to be a place where uh I spoke with people who practiced different forms of wicca and what they would consider white magic. And they found it very very filled with energy and a very positive energy, and they were able to use that. And then they often had very spiritual experiences there, things they couldn't explain. And they would have uh, little time slips, so they would have catchy little flashes of things that had happened years ago there. Um, I think in recent days, people, I don't know whether, just because people have shown a a brighter light on it because they've started investigating there more, um, or whether it's because you know these things run in cycles, and now there seems to be something darker there. Um, but people have actually reported uh, having negative experiences at the reservation, and and beginning to have um, you know their feet being clawed at as they're walking through, and to have uh, these very uh, dark spirits that they see. And then, of course, the the welcome center burnt down a few years ago, and that was kind of an unexplained thing. And and so people, even that part, of it seems to now kind of be tainted.
0: Is that true for uh, the Native Americans who use it as well? Um,
2: You know, I I have never been able to speak with Native Americans who uh, actively use it or who actively go there. I've been able to speak with people from the Wampanoag tribe who talk about it in a very abstract kind of way, but who have never participated. Um, I recently got a report from someone working on a separate case on the other side of Massachusetts uh, that things like the Freetown State Forest, things like Pukwudgie, they kind of laugh off being like, what are you kidding? It's like a, a little trickster spirit. Like, ah, oh, there's nothing very horrible there. There's just, like, you know, a lot of little weird things happen. But on the other side of that, there are people who have spoken out and said, until this whole land, until that whole land, especially the Freetown State Forest, but everything given away in the Free uh, the Freeman's Purchase, until that's given back to the Wampanoag tribe, dark things will still continue to happen. So it's kind of a mixed bag, and you kind of get the feeling that it's more of everyone kind of grabbing for their own and trying to find their own kind of justification and any kind of real, true spiritual connection to it. Right. But that's just from my perspective.
0: Well, maybe now is a good time to explain what the uh, what the puck, puck, pug, puck <laughs> is. That right? What the puckwudgie is?
2: Yep, puckwudgie. Yeah, I mean puckwudgies are this three foot tall uh, creature. It has been compared to a troll often. Um, they 've been compared to little monsters um, they 've been compared to a Wampanoag who 's been kind of shrunk or looks like they 've almost like a Wampanoag who 's had a curse put upon them until they stop growing at a certain uh, at a certain time and their features are often very much like a human features except for they 've often been reported with elongated nose um, almost uh, wolf like almost werewolf like um, they 've been reported as being covered completely covered in fur they 've been reported as having kind of uh, very um, slick skin, but a lot of hair on the top, and then and, and these kind of like ambiguously hairy area on the bottom. Um, but they've been, they've been used to explain a lot of bad things over the years. Um, and when I began doing my research, there was nothing out there about Pukwudgie. The only reference I could find um, online was a reference to a kid's book called The Good Giant and the Bad Pukwudgie. Uh, which I immediately ordered, and it cost me about twenty-seven dollars at the time for this, you know, <laughs> this little kids book. Uh, and the more I read about it, I started seeing that there were it was mirroring a lot of uh, odd things that people were seeing, especially um, naked eye orbs and and these unexplained fires and these these things that were like, huh, okay, well, you know, that could just be coincidence. Um, and then, but through that book, I was able to then get kind of what was the the, the reference material that that writer used to write to write the kid's book. And as I started to read these stories, I'm like, wow, these are things that are still happening today. And right about the same time, I started getting reports from people who were having experiences. And so instead of being this little, cool kind of creation myth that might have some meaning as to, like, you know, don't go too far, the puck wedges will get you, kind of like, you know, shaking your finger to warn children not to do things, um, I started to have people who were experiencing these small creatures in the woods that would then almost stalk them afterwards uh, and almost always there was a, an, an experience within the woods where they would come into contact with it nothing would necessarily happen although they kind of had the feeling of dread in them and then days or weeks later the Pukwudgie would appear in a different area so for example one of the cases that's in Dark Woods was you know the people were, were they they saw the Pukwudgie um, and then a few days later they were in bed at their house, and the wedge was at the window. Um, and it never seemed to be too uh, active, too, act, you know, too, like, attacking or anything like that, but there seemed to be this kind of feeling of, just so you know, I know where you live.
0: Yeah, well, in ufology, um, they started... would say that this was a, a screen memory for alien abduction. That's what I found fascinating well, about odd... it.
2: Yeah, well, the odd thing is, is that as I started publishing these things, I started getting more cases, and all of a sudden it began to cross over and people who had had what they had felt for years was an alien abduction story would retell me their story and say, now that I hear what you're saying, that sounds like a Pukwudgie. Um So once again, in the Bridgewater Triangle, everything kind of seems to bleed over into each other. And so there's this real kind of questioning of what is the origin of the puckwudgie? Is it this kind of uh, elemental spirit as kind of put forth by the, the Wampanoag, or is it an alien? Is it the spirit of something else? And it's very interesting that we talked about the, the kind of conversion uh, of the Wampanoags as, as, as more settlers began to come into the area and kind of control different areas. You start to see in their folklore, they switch from calling them Puck, or they switch from, from referring to this kind of controlling force of Puck as Shadow or Dark Men to they start calling it the Devil. So, at a very clear-cut place in their mythology, they all of a sudden the puck becomes associated with the devil, and now the devil is controlling the puck wedgies, and the devil is sending them out. So you have this kind of uh, this kind of free-for-all for who exactly controls the puck wedgies, what exactly the puck are. But of course, the more research you do, and the more words that start to pop up, you start to see that these aren't unique to New England, and they're not unique to Massachusetts or Freetown or the Bridgewater Triangle. They're reported all over the world. They're just called different things. And so as I started to kind of hear reports of, for example, the Oz Spirit in Australia, and they actually have a a festival to the Oz Spirit, and I showed a picture of, you know, this festival and the preacher called the Oz Spirit. The person said, that's exactly what I saw, only it was three feet tall. Um, And so you really have, what is this paranormal thing that exists? And it's really, really hard to define it.
0: Do you see uh, if if you look at your case reports by the year? Do you see an evolution in the types of things that are being seen there, or is it consistent?
2: I think it's it's more of people are recognizing it. I mean, do people um, see zombies people more in the
0: '70s than the '80s and '90s? Do people see pukwudgies more, and then start to see ghosts, and then start to see you know aliens? Or I mean, does it change with the culture, with the tide of culture, or no?
2: Um, I, I think that. For example, with the zombies, I think it has a much deeper connection to kind of who controls the area. So it is, there are these cycles that go through. Um, It would seem that for a while there were, uh, there was a large Cape Verdean population um, that had their roots back into, um, you know, Cape Verdean version or Cape Verdean version of uh, voodoo. And so much more kind of like the original Santeria and, uh, and, and the darker side of Santeria. And so the theory always was that these were either really drugged-out victims who had been dug shallow graves who were actually alive, or they were um, zombies set out by voodoo practitioners. Um, and then, of course, as the area then kind of changed its population more, you start to see other things kind of pop up. So there is, there is somewhat of kind of a cycle that goes through but there always seems to be this underlining darkness to whatever it is. So it's never like these happy, friendly ghost spirits that you know you can get along with. There always seems to be something that is very active and coming at you, and something that's kind of beyond
0: definition oftentimes. Do people report these things to the police? Well, the, the police are reporting it to me. Oh, I see. Of time. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm just <laughs> imagining this case I mean, file for, for Freetown that's just, you know satanic cults. You well, just rifle through There's like satanic cults, UFOs, Bigfoot. And it's the police right, station.
2: I, I think yes. The answer is yes. All the, there is no one that doesn't know about it. I remember um, uh, um, Tim and I, uh, when Tim went out, he was doing a story for the After Dark newsletter on the Bridgewater Triangle. And so we went out looking for Bigfoot because he wanted to see Bigfoot and some other stuff. And so I went to this area and I showed him. We kind of were examining it. and And in in the process of us trying to get out of this area, I fell into a ditch and had to be towed out. So him and I we, you know, were in this ditch kind of talking about the Bridgewater Triangle for you know a few hours waiting for a tow truck. The tow truck arrived, and the guy asked, well, what were you guys doing? And I, we explained to them, and I'm like, oh, let me tell you this story. And, of course, he then tells his Bridgewater Triangle story, which was of this, you know, like, Sixty-foot alligator that lived in the in the pond next you know next to where he lived. That there's no way it could have possibly got there. And of course, as he's towing us out, a cop shows up, and he's like, "What were you guys doing here?" And we explain it to him. And then the cop has his own story. So it's it's one of those things where people do report these things, and I think they do get put into the the police's like you know unusual, unexplained. Let's never talk about it file. Um, but then they're always willing to talk. It's it's the, it's the one area that I've been to that the police are very vocal. About activity that happens there, just not on the record um and then of course, oftentimes they come to me you know there's the the case of the the ghost of the dispatcher at the freetown uh at the Freetown police department, and you know the dispatchers there were very willing to talk about the fact that one of their own who had died um you know in the line of duty as a dispatcher uh she had suffered a heart attack, was still there, uh and her spirit was there, and many of them had seen it and and so it, it's kind of one of those things where In New England, the culture of ghosts is different. It's a little bit more accepted. I I actually live in the South now where it's not accepted. Uh, And so I see a total different viewpoint of it. Um, But then within these towns, Freetown, um, Taunton is like this. Norway is like this. Easton is like this. Uh, Rehoboth is practically, I'm waiting for them to put up signs saying, the ghost capital of New England. Um, Very much the the people who live in a culture of the paranormal, and the police kind of reflect that.
0: Huh. Well, let me ask you one more loaded question and this will make Jeff's ears perk up and then I'll toss it over to him. One of the sort of through lines with all of this phenomena that I'm seeing in your book uh, are these balls of light. They seem to be associated with ghosts and creatures and puckwudgy and and all sorts of things. Do you find that? I mean, do you think that that this is a through line, these orbs of light? um, And do you see different colors... Uh, doing different things? I mean, is there a meaning to the color that you can find?
2: Um, I've never been able to nail down the color. Uh, I remember years ago hearing a speech um, by someone in the area who, they were saying something to the effect of how the person died. Uh, whatever killed them was the color of the orb. And it coincided with... Uh, with. Um, um, with the different parts of the body. So, for example, red was the head, and white was, you know, the stomach, and, and it corresponded with, I believe, you know, the, the, the points of the yoga. Um, and oh, like chakra? I chakra, when like I asked chakra him points? The sh- yeah, thank you, the chakra. Huh. And, and I kind of pressed him on that, well, what makes you think that? And it was nothing more than there were different colors, and it's like they was not able to kind of follow it up. It was a very intriguing idea, but there was no kind of evidence behind it. and There was kind of just a very loose connection. Um, I've never been able to identify why orbs are different colors. Um, I think that for the most part, people see different shades of white. Um, like white seems to be the main color, and then sometimes they see a white that's a little bit more of a yellowish tinge to it, or a little bit more of a bluish tinge to it. Um, and then of course the next major one below that would be these red orbs. Um... But I've never been able to identify, and, and I'm not really sure whether it... You know, people try to put all kinds of meaning into things that they see. Um, but I think a lot of that is kind of their own weight, their own wanting to kind of explain something to, to explain, well, the red is because they're very angry. Um, although it does seem to kind of fit sometimes with the, the kind of activity that's there, mainly where it is. You know, you see greenish-tinged ones more in cemeteries, which, of course, makes you think that they're more... Uh, these bursts of light based on the gas that are there. Uh, for some reason, yellow lights seem to be seen more uh, and associated with spirits of railroads, uh, of railroad workers and things like that, which might correspond with lights, although why would you care on a red light if you're, you know, you're, people don't use red lanterns unless they're, you know, it's stop or something like that. But I really have never been able to find anything that completely convinces me as to why orbs are the color they are.
1: Chris, I'm curious uh, because I, I, you know, I have to admit to our audience and to you, I, I haven't read any books on this of any kind, so I'm going in rather blind here. But uh, how big is the actual forested area? I mean, would you say in in terms of square miles?
2: If I'm not mistaken, and, and it's <laughs> it's been a while since I've oh, actually opened up the book and looked at the research of it, I think it is either 500 acres. Okay. It does stretch into several towns, um, and of course, there's, you know, there's two separate forests. They're separated by a road, and so there's kind of Forest A, which is more active, and then Forest B, and then it goes into Fall River. But I, The number 500 is sticking out in my head, and I know it's not 500 miles, so I'm pretty sure it's 500 acres.
1: Okay, so there's, this is a, a fair chance that I would say if you and I went out there and got out of a car at a certain point, we could walk. And, and probably get pretty tired before we uh, we came out the other end. Um, you
2: could have, and I've heard of this, five or six different groups investigating different areas, and they would never know each other were there. It's that large.
1: Okay. Well, okay, perfect. Uh, so at that point, I have to ask you, uh, have you gone in there and tried to stake this place out? Have you set up video cameras, trap cameras? Has anyone done that, if you have not?
2: I know that... Um, you know, we're kind of now in the era, I call it, you know, Bridgewater Triangle 3.0. I know there are a lot more groups that within the forest and then with other areas um, are trying to set up much more uh, investigative, active things. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is that you can set up, for example, you can set up a trap camera, but you're dealing with stories that have existed for 500 years. Right. So it's really trying to catch lightning in a bottle to have something happen. Um mm-hmm. And in terms of earthly things, uh, the, f- the forest isn't necessarily it's not, it's not the big um, big foot area, let's say fall river mean um, that, um, that bridgewater would be, or that the Hockamuck swamp would be. So you really kind of would be betting on the fact that, for example, a puckwudgie is something that's corporal enough to actually set something off right, um, or to be ca- caught on camera or to be recorded somehow. Okay. Um, or you're really kind of hoping that, for example, and I know tons of people who do this. I, I just had a group actually talk to me about this, saying, you know, when's the best time to, to see the red-headed hitchhiker of route, uh, route 44 in <laughs> right. And I went, ah, it would seem to be about 40 years ago would have probably been the best time. Right, <laughs> went, right. You know, and they're like, we want to set up cameras and see if we can catch it. And I said, well, there's no predictable, and that's part of the disturbing part of this, Is that there's no predictable kind of time when it happens. There's no set clock that in March, on March 5th, the anniversary of this, you're going to see something. It goes back to that kind of unable to detect the origin. So, in terms of trying to catch something that might be, um, that might be far more into cryptozoology or more into UFO, um, the forest would probably not be the best area to do it in. And it is, like I said, so vast that, you know, you're doing something in one area and there might be something happening miles away from you that you would never record and so I think I a lot of people get daunted by that
1: right but there's not been really anybody who's gone in there and set up like a 24 hour surveillance just off the cuff and, and and gotten any kind of visual data on this thing I mean I would think that uh, you know I mean we are talking about a, 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 a fairly active paranormal spot even though vast uh, you know you would assume some people would go fishing you know what I mean um, right. and, and possibly get something uh, of of visual data uh to show and di- I know we don 't necessarily have that, do we?
2: I know that there are people who, for example, have camped out uh, overnight at the sonnet ledge uh-huh. um, because it is a, an easier place to get to because there's so much activity there that 's been reported, and because of uh, the fact that there has been things, there have been things you um, Jeremy was talking earlier about the the feelings that make people want to jump off the cliff. But there have actually been, you know, um, visual orbs seen there. There have actually been um, um, Native American, ghosts of Native Americans seen there. There have been what I would identify as a UFO sighting um, right there at the cliff, as well as this kind of very bizarre, um, almost like souls trapped under the water trying to get out as balls of light being seen there. And so people say, okay, well, this has got kind of everything here, so let's camp out here. Um, and as far as I know, no one's ever gotten anything convincing in a long-term investigation.
1: Hmm. Okay. How many, uh, would you say over the years, or at least that you've researched back as far as you can go, what's the, uh, well, how do you put this? What's the murder rate like? In other words, how many bodies have been drug out of this place since probably 1960, would you say?
2: Are you talking about the Asana ledge?
1: I'm talking about any of yeah the whole shebang. I mean, are are we talking about that? This is. I mean, you mentioned earlier that this was probably an area of of you know uh, this was kind of a point, a meeting point to do this sort of thing to get rid of your uh, excess baggage. Um, So, I mean, is that something that you still still see to this day that is fairly frequent that they're finding yet another body in this area? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is still happening. it's, it's still one of those places that people find now it's been it's been developed and it is uh, much more uh it's mu- it's a lot more populated by people who are bringing positive things to it okay. um it's actually one of the foremost training grounds in the country for dog sleds for example um people go in there and it's so vast that they can train their dog sleds uh their 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 dogs to actually run these long races mm. um so there people that are working in a positive way are there more frequently. Uh, there's actually a fire station set up in one of the main areas now that wasn't there before. Um, that being said, people are still disappearing in that area. People are still being found in that area. Hmm. So when you think of the murder rate, if you, you know, if you think about it not in terms of people from the town who die, but bodies that are found um, versus what the area is and what it should be, it should be this kind of quiet town where nothing happens, um, the murder rate's pretty high, okay. Um, although, although not as not as bad as it was, like let's say in the late seventies and all through the eighties into the nineties.
1: Right. Okay. Well, that seems to kind of jive with an area we've talked about on the show that, that's near me called Lock Raven Reservoir. And this is, you know, this is an area that you—it's a man-made reservoir, but there used to be a town there, and they basically evacuated the town. They flooded it out. And I remember as a kid, um, well, 16 years old, going off and going fishing there and being told over and over and over, do not stay there past sundown. There is a lot of bodies that are found there. There are a lot of accidents there. You know, it seemed to be the same type of thing. Nowadays, you don't really hear much about that in that area. So I find it interesting that 70s, 80s, and 90s, because that was kind of Lock Raven's I I would say main drag of finding bodies, both in cars, out of cars, you know, uh, tied to rocks, uh, hung from trees, that sort of thing. That was all found in that area. Is there anything, I mean, Jeremy had asked you about the stone structures and that sort of thing, but I'm going a little different route as it kind of might apply to the UFO stuff. Um, Stone pillars of any kind? Multiple stone pillars? Anything like that that you've seen? Piles of stones, perhaps?
2: Um, well, I mean, the stones that are there themselves are kind of unique to that area. Um, there's a report of, I believe, uh, I mean, just oh, just near that area in Connecticut, they pulled up all the stone and they used it for a highway and people's uh, navigation systems, you know, navigation systems at that time, I mean, it started going crazy. Um, and as cars started breaking down on this area based on kind of the... The electromagnetic things that were coming from these rocks and from this one stretch of road they had used the stone for, and so they took it, uh, they, they pulled it up, and they put it into one big pile, which now has all this activity attached to it. Um, one of the odd things is, is, is we were just talking about the Aswanet Ledge, which is once again a, a man-made uh, ledge and a man-made reservoir, uh, which has been used to dump, you know, dump bodies, and it's been the site of suicides. But as they were digging up this um, up the rock and using it, many of the places that they then ship that rock to are now haunted locations throughout New England. One of which being Taunton State Hospital. So, in terms of actually having uh, having pillars or structures that seem to have been made um, based on the rock, there's not that much. But you do can, you can kind of follow the the, the rock formations, kind of the natural mounds, things like that, things like um, things like Anawan Rock that happened in Rehoboth. And they have activity attached to them, but not nearly as much as some other places in the country, or even in New England. Hmm.
1: Now, you mentioned uh, some of the effects of these rocks on GPS systems and such like that. What has been the, uh, the findings when someone has perhaps tried to take some kind of survey of magnetic uh, features in this area? Are you finding high magnetic uh, readings uh, or not, or you know, lower than normal higher-than-normal radiation levels, so on and so forth. Has anybody actually done that kind of work there?
2: Um, people have their equipment go crazy. Um, they have their Geiger counters go crazy, uh, so in terms of radiation. Um, EMF is almost useless there unless you have a really uh, sensitive piece of equipment. Um, things like, I mean, you know, back in the day when I started investigating, all we did was bring out AM radios and see if we could pick things up or if we could send some kind of disturbance. Things like that, which I've conducted myself, have kind of, the radio goes haywire, seems to be kind of rolling through the stations, although the knob doesn't move. Um, But in terms of actual numbers, um, you know, someone who's kind of more on the scientific side would probably be able to to explain that a little better, although people have done it and have reported back to me that it's kind of wacky.
0: Huh.
1: Okay, so we're talking about almost every sort of paranormal meme that there is here with this whole area. (laughs) How many reports do you get, and and you don't have to go into them in detail if you don't want to. But have you ever gotten some that are just completely beyond the pale? I mean, so bizarre and so right. what? Uh, you know, uh, nothing that could be attributable to any paranormal phenomena whatsoever, but are just so freaking weird that you wouldn't even want to bring them up for fear of marginalizing yourself and even reporting it. I mean, have um, you gotten that sort of thing?
2: Well, let me start by saying this. If I feel that the source is legitimate, regardless mm. of whether or not I can bring equipment in and improve it or anything like that. If I feel the source is credible and they're speaking from their heart and I can, I can, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle school teacher. I was a high school teacher for years. My meter is pretty good. Uh, with being able to tell liars, pretty good, not great, but pretty good um, if i 've got a story that I think someone is just making up i don 't care what the story might be i 'm going to report it now i 'm going to as I report it i 'm going to put it forth as here 's what this person said not here 's what I believe which is what I always do, um, and let people kind of make their judgments on it and bring in as much information I can to surround it, whether that 's to um to say that what they 're saying doesn 't make sense based on other things that have kind of happened or, or whether it makes sense, it's kind of backed up by this. So I'll present anything as long as I feel the source is credible. I don't care, but I have no reputation where, you know, that's going to be tarnished. So Okay. And it would be, I think for me, it would be completely ridiculous for me to create any kind of filter that would say um, that, would say that you know, this is true and this isn't true. Right. That being said, yeah, dude, I've got people that are completely crazy.
1: <laughs> really?
2: Um you know, I was, I was actually, once again, like I said, I'm a school teacher. I was actually well, I was teaching my students how to compose a formal uh, email today, and I was giving them examples of emails I've gotten over the years that were horrible.
0: Right. And so
2: I actually pulled up an old one from a teenager who said her friend was either missing or had committed suicide or was killed, although she just saw her the other day, but the news report said she was dead, and there seemed to be this black man in a yellow sweatshirt a yellow sweater that kept, like, falling, following her around, and he had, had committed to, he, like, at one point had blown his face off in the mirror as she was, uh, the window as she was watching him in his, in her yard, and, uh. you know, then his face had come back together, and he had just was like, ha ah, laughing at her, and then this other girl had seen him on the highway, like, ten minutes later, even, I was like, all right, okay, that that's cool, that's cool, all right, well, you know, thank you very much for the story, and I've kind of put it to the side. Mm. Um, I think a lot of what I get that kind of falls into that, um category of you know pat on the head and say okay let's ruin thank you for sharing your story is more people who experience something that they can't explain which if i looked closely into enough, i could probably explain it but because they know the history and because they know things happened there and because they even know something specific they attach their experience to something that happened and they want to kind of become part of the paranormal story right. um and i and whether that's whether that's out of selfishness or whether that's just out of wanting to connect based on something that happened to them that they can't explain. Um, I try not to judge that, but I will say, for example, like the red-headed hitchhiker that I I talked about before, so many people have said, I saw a leg going into the woods. I know it had to be a ghost. You know, (laughs) or my radio radio changed when I was in that area, and so therefore I know the ghost has to exist because he changed my radio. And he changed to something that had the word red in it. Um, I get many more stories like that of people who I think genuinely... Think they experience something, but I think it's almost like this form of hysteria because they are in the Bridgewater Triangle.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, got shell shocked. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, one of the I mean, one of the things we've talked a lot about uh, on this show is is uh, how the phenomena seems to react to attention. And uh, I'm not so sure that places like Gulf Breeze, Florida, Pine Bush, New York, uh, you know, whatever Marley Woods is, wherever it is. Uh, you know, your place here. Uh, all of these things become uh, whether or not they start out as folklore or not. And I'm thinking probably not. Uh, you know, they, they tend to attract people who are interested in seeing what it's all about. And right. so I'm curious if you yourself or if anyone has come to you who has done investigations in this place uh, or in this area has come to you and said, you know, it seems like the more I go, the more I see, or the more I think I see. Um, And and eventually, you know, what that culminates in, in the end, is something happening that is absolutely undeniable. I mean, we could, like you say, we could blow off certain parts of it to say, well, you're like the little kid listening for the bump in the night, and of course you're going to hear it. But oftentimes, what you end up with is something in your face. And so have you had that sort of dynamic going on there?
2: Well, first of all, I mean, I started Massachusetts the Paranormal Crossroads. The crossroads is that intersection, that intersection of folklore, that intersection of town history, and what might be a paranormal, an actual genuine paranormal experience. Um, so I've been obsessed with that for 15 years now, like separating those two things. Right. And what I've come to, which is kind of what you're talking about, is recognize both and embrace both, but notice that there's a difference between the two. Um, and so I I think the more time people spend in areas of the triangle, the more they see activity um, and the more significance they put onto things. And so what might have been passed off as a normal experience um, becomes something more. Uh, a great example of this is for EVP evidence that people get there that you know, there's already this kind of leap that's sometimes made with lesser quality EVPs where people say, no, I know that they're saying, you know, the general sits and I happen to be on a battlefield. And so they're talking about, you know, what actually it it might be something either completely different or some other noise altogether. Mm -hmm. And so what you have are people who get a lot of EVP evidence that because it's a noise and they don't understand it, they start flipping through their Wampanoag to English dictionary translations and coming up with those <laughs> evidence that's like, no, they said this. This <laughs> right. means tree, and I was near a tree. Um, and, and so you you kind of see, but that being said, you know, first of all, I think that the more time you spend looking, the more things find you. Right. Um, and I also, and then, you know, with that, you know, it's kind of in the background, the number of reports I get from people who have had one single experience in their life uh-huh. um, and report, one thing that they happen that's been gnawing at them for days or years, sometimes decades. Those are the ones that I actually put more weight into in building kind of this, this, um, this, this collection of evidence to what might be going on there. Than the people who go out actively look and then what do you know, they actually find something. So those two things living together in this area kind of continuously prove to me that there's something going on.
1: Right. What has been your most bizarre experience with all of this?
2: Wow, I think that my personal um, weirdest experience within the Bridgewater Triangle, at least, um, has got to be the amount of bad luck I have when I'm doing things associated with it. Okay. Um, and <laughs> it's it's one of those things where if one thing happens, you're like, okay. If another thing happens, you know, as as an investigator, you're always worried about something coming back with you. Uh huh. Um, And my wife has a very strict policy of leave the ghost at the door. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But I've had a. So whenever I'm in that area, I have something weird that happens to me or something parallel in my normal life that's associated with it. For example, um, I I, I tell the story about me calling my wife, telling her that I'm on my way back from the Freetown State Forest. Um, And then almost as soon as she hangs up, she slips, falls on a flight of stairs, and goes through the glass window at the front door. Ouch. <laughs> um, I remember, um, it, it, it doesn't seem like I can do a, a, a speech or talk about the Bridgewater Triangle where something doesn't go majorly wrong. Um, oh. I, talked about, uh, uh, I talked about falling into a ditch with Tim Banal there. I had another car that uh, basically blew up in the Freetown State Forest. Um, I've had, um, uh, I got a tick in my belly button when I was investigating the Hockamock Swamp. Now I have a, I'm a large man. I've got a lot of surface area on my body. <laughs>
1: right.
0: For
2: them to actually go into my belly button and kind of make their home there, so I had to have it surgically removed. That's right. pretty intense. Yeah. And so you know, that is that is something that you know I've had experiences there, and you can kind of sit back and say, wow, that was just a paranormal experience. I've seen things kind of pop up. I've, I've been able to follow uh, ghost lights uh, through areas of the forest, and and and. and and seen shadows on the, on the grounds of the Taunton uh, of the Taunton State Hospital, um, but the the amount of bad things that happened to me that seem to be mundane if they're looked at in a singular way, but then when you take and take them together, kind of start making you scratch your head. That's hmm. what really leaves me.
1: Okay. Uh, do you step back and go, "Am I making too much of this?" I mean, and by that token, does that does does anybody who studies? You know, this area, does, does anybody step back and go, no, wait a minute, let me really, let me really think about this? I mean, do you, do you find a lot of seriously analytical people in there, or do you find, I don't know, that the populace of people who are studying this stuff genuinely want to believe it? I mean, how do you find this skepticality uh, borderline in this town? Um,
2: are you talking about people who investigate or people who live there?
1: I would say both. I mean, I mean, generally, I think the people who live there are going to get the bulk of the stories because they live there. Go I ahead, think I'm sorry. that there is
2: a, a culture of the paranormal there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and people who I've talked to kind of acknowledge that they know people or they've had weird things happen to them. Okay. Um, but I think how that shows itself is often a surprise to people. And they find me because, even though this is kind of in the background, something happens to them and they want someone to explain it to them. Um that's how I found the Bridgewater Triangle. I don't live, I didn't live anywhere near it. I lived, a, you know, an hour, an hour and a half away from it. People kept finding me because they would experience something and want someone to explain it, and I started publishing stories about it. Um, and so I think, once again, the majority of people, whereas they might live in this area that's known for that, and they know it exists, still when it pops its head up, they're left not understanding and feeling empty and wanting someone to, to guide them that way. Right. Um, I think investigators for the most part, um, regardless of how um skeptical uh and how much they used to use they like to use words like debunk, which is a word I absolutely can't stand, um <laughs> right. they want to have experiences and so oftentimes they don't. Otherwise they would say, Let's investigate, you know, this playground where nothing but nice things have happened and they don't. They go to places that are supposed to be haunted and they're looking to either Disprove it or to experience something, which means automatically their, their paranormal lights are on. Right. Um, and I think that in terms of making connections, it's just a logical thing because when you're investigating, especially when you start to strip away some of the equipment and you're really looking into an area, all of your senses are extremely heightened. You right. know, you are the, you are the blind person who can hear better and the deaf person who can see better at the same time. Um, and so you are just naturally going to see things which are natural, which seem supernatural because when you're not in that mode, you don't hear them or see them.
1: Mm, right. Well, with all of the uh, – you, you've remarked that a lot of the electronic malfunctions happen, all sorts of equipment malfunctioning, including cars, uh, all of that. And then you mentioned the little creatures that I can't remember the name of, but I think I'm too an adult
0: to say. Um <laughs> Pukwudgie uh, Jeff Pukwudgie uh, f- Thanks puck Jeremy uh,
2: It feels good to say it So uh, say it once for me
0: Pukwudgie w- You'll say Ewok but you won't say Pukwudgie
1: <laughs> Um There you go So <laughs> The first thing that comes to my head When you say Pukwudgie Is gremlin Fairy gnome mm-hmm. That sort of thing Leprechaun. Yeah, if you want to go that far, sure. I'm curious you know, if you've had any contact with uh, anyone in the UK about this or if anybody from the UK has been in to investigate this and what their take on that whole, that whole narrative is of these little people. And also whether or not you know, any of the little people have ever left little evidence around or footprints or anything. I mean anything whatsoever. Whether it's ambiguous or not, I mean, has anyone ever come up with any evidence of these things?
2: I have documented things being
1: moved, okay.
2: um, which, once again, you can attribute to your normal everyday life or anything along the paranormal spectrum um, in association with these. Um, I have never heard of anyone ever getting a footprint. And once again, it goes back to that question is that because they don't exist, or is that because they fall into the realm of something that doesn't leave footprints? Mm-hmm. You know exactly how physical are these things. Um, in terms of the puck wedgies, there's very little physical evidence left. Um, the experiences—no one ever reports anything smelling, even at huh. the time. You know, during the experience, um, they never notice anything like the um, the sound of footprints being made or or even the rustling of leaves, right. anything like that. And so, you're really left with this complete lack. Of physical evidence as to what they may have experienced.
1: Hmm. So that's all strictly experiential at this point. For that,
2: right? Well, right. In I, terms of in terms, I have talked. I have talked to, um, I have talked to Europeans who kind of uh, speak on the same thing. I know that Ron Kolick, uh-huh. uh who's also out of New England, often has uh, has Europeans over. He seems to be very big on the Europeans uh, of celebrities, and he's taken them into the forest. I don't know whether they feel the same way. I've, I have communicated with authorities who study folklore um, and explained my experiences. The reason why I said leprechaun is because, you know, in a lot of leprechaun literature, they're referred to as uh, the pygmies, which is also a word that is used to describe the Pukwudgies. And so there's almost kind of a direct link between them, although, you know, pygmies are pretty much a uh, kind of an ambiguous term for, you know, something small that's kind of unexplained or, 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 or um, you know, creature-like and, and small. Um, and so, you know, I've kind of swapped research with other paranormal investigators in other parts of the world, and we kind of all come to the same conclusion that, like, yeah, the, the, I just call it Puck Wedgie, my Puck Wedgie is your leprechaun, and and your leprechaun is this person's odd spirit. And so, you know, we pretty much can determine that these are not something exclusive to the Wampanoag tribe.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, me, I mean, to the
2: fact that they're they're seen in, they're, they're called Pukwesies in Indiana as well, which really hmm. has no kind of connection to New England in terms of the tribes that existed there. I mean, obviously there had to be some kind of communication for them to use the same word, um, but there's nothing that says this tribe from Indiana, and I don't know that tribe's name, is associated with the Wampanoag because of this. You just can assume that, you know, the, the words didn't spring up almost identically at the same
1: time. Right. How about... Uh as far as anything audible in the way of a voice, uh, disembodied voices, that sort of thing, and if so, if anyone has heard this sort of thing, whether now i i 'm not sure if I, if I understood this right or not, but in this area, I mean it's mainly forest, of course, but are there houses in there? Have there been houses there, you know, squarely within this? I mean, you were talking about the the two couples earlier um, which that, that puts well, I mean, my, my ears right up because that fits perfectly into uh, another guest that we've had on, George Hansen, who's talked about the anti-structural nature of the paranormal and how it is simply not good for relationships of any kind. Uh, right. That, that certainly fits that bill right there as to why people would start to have negative feelings about each other and, and, uh, and turmoil simmering underneath the surface, that sort of thing. But what about voices and, and that people are hearing? And extend, I mean,
2: that, extend that out. Extend that out to um, the absolutely ridiculous internal crime and suicide rate of Bridgewater state hospital um, really and okay. a state hospital and extend that out to um to the fact that uh you know and this is once again stories from I used to work with juvenile uh juvenile criminals who would say that uh the the, the child secure the you know child eighteen year old secure location at Taunton was more violent than any place they'd ever been to. And they had, you know, spent time in different secure locations throughout the state, you know, even within weird years of each other. So it's not like it was a trend like, oh, wow, that's bad now, but, you know, this other place was nice. Um, that that underlining negativity seems to extend itself to bad relationships within these kind of uh, hospitals that are there as well. Huh. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, the Bridgewater Triangle has, you know, Thousands of houses um because it covers you know it covers at least ten ten towns and it covers Taunton, right. which is the largest geographical city in Massachusetts um I extended it out to Brockton, which is uh, one of the one of the most uh crime ridden uh, areas of, of Massachusetts It extends itself um you know into into towns that are known now still as being very violent places like Fall River and New Bedford, which have um, severe gang and drug issues, um, which of, of course is, is all kind of runs alongside the the real big cults that are active in those areas, um, and so there is this kind of you know, and of course you can find that kind of thing in any area of of the country, in any area of the world, um, that there is a lot of, of of bad feelings. But when the ba- and that's that's kind of what sparked me writing Dark Woods and doing that research was well, is there a connection? Because there seems to be a disproportionate amount of violence and and negativity in these areas that are also having the, this paranormal activity. Hmm. Um, and I'm not sure I completely answer the question that it can be answered, but I think that I've got enough people kind of looking in that area now and kind of thinking the paranormal in maybe a different way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'd love to know so, what and- the divorce rate is, you know, versus towns, you know, so many miles away, like in the surrounding Area. I'd love to know what the divorce rate is uh, you know, uh, per household versus areas just outside or not that far away from the surrounding area. I mean, that would be uh, I've, very I studied
2: curious. I've studied other areas of Massachusetts, and I've found that there is a direct correlation, or there would seem to be. The numbers write out that areas that I see a lot of paranormal activity in. Um, there's a town called Woburn that I used to live in, mm-hmm. and there's this one little area of Woburn known as the Glen and there seems to be a crazy amount of paranormal activity within the houses in terms of goats, um, most of which can kind of be uh, identified as having some kind of source. People, you know, physically describe something, and I'm able to kind of bring something out, and there's a there's a pond there called Horn Pond, which is supposedly this great battle of good and evil spirits and all this kind of stuff. Um, but what I found was that in this area of the Glen, the divorce rate to other parts of Woburn and then other parts of... of Middlesex County, than other parts of Massachusetts is crazy. There's one stretch of street where every house has a divorced parent in there.
1: And there it is. Yeah. And there yeah. it is.
2: So, I mean, you know, scientifically, sociologically, can I bear that down? Am I a statistician? No. But when I compare those two things, it seems like an odd occurrence that happens in many areas where there's high paranormal activity.
1: huh. Well, and, and then the, you know, the secondary question to all of that, uh, that has absolutely nothing to do with it, which is how I roll. Um, <laughs> uh, anybody ever been walking in this area and, and heard disembodied voices? And if so, have yeah. they told them anything useful whatsoever?
2: Um, I have a documented case in uh, Dark Woods of a person who got um, a voice and a hand on their shoulder that completely changed their life around. Um, they didn't. They were kind of, um, you know, confused about what was to do in their life. Um, they can't remember what the person said, but they know it made sense at the time. It, it wasn't even, I think, in the language that the person, in a conscious state, could understand. But that hand and that voice changed their life, and all of a sudden, they changed. You know, they they changed their job. They quit their job. They changed their life around. Um, people hear very weird things in the woods. Um, and they record very weird things in the woods. I mean, it's almost impossible. Now, this is not, this is in the Bridgewater Triangle, but not Freetown. Um, It it would seem that no paranormal group can go to this area known as Anawan Rock and not get a clear-cut EVP. Oh, okay. Um, And and then one of the things that first got me involved in this work was a book called New England Ghost Files uh, that talks about people hearing disembodied voices at that spot very clearly, um saying what was roughly translated to stand and fight. And that was the site of the surrender of the final troops uh during the, the King Philip's war. Um, mm-hmm. and so people are hearing voices here all the time. Um and then kind of an extension of that, you know, people um you know I have a, a, a video up on YouTube called When Puckwaji's attack um,
1: <laughs> that I has guess.
2: That, you know, and people can take of it what they will. Once again, I present, I present the findings and you judge it. And I okay. try to be hands off when people make comments. I try to include every comment if it doesn't have a swear in it.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, and people say it's a complete fraud. People say we staged it. People, all these things. I'm like, I can tell you one thing we didn't stage it. Whether it's genuine, whether this woman uh, that you see was possessed by anything, um, or whether it was um, her making it up. Um, or whether it was her kind of because she is into this um, kind of getting caught up in her own kind of uh, hysteria because uh-huh. um, she's you know she does this thing often. There are some sounds that come out of her that you can only describe as other earthly, Otherworldly. Wow. I mean, it is. It is. It is. Some of the things are guttural. where you hear described things like exorcisms and 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 demonic attacks. And so, you know. I I did not say okay now do this and I'll roll the camera, you know we caught it as we were kind of closing up shop for the night in this location, and you know well I, I encourage people to go see it and judge for themselves.
1: Wow, well I hope, uh, send us a link for that because we'll put that on the uh, on the on the interview sure? page by the way. Well, What's I mean well? it uh, it sounds like the gambit, and uh, you know, and I don't know about. Uh, well, I'm sure in Pine Bush, uh, there. I, I mean, I've heard very similar things out of that whole area, with especially with cult activity, um, you know, uh, ghost activity. Certainly, ufological stuff going on there. Um, I haven't heard anything about uh, puck wudgies in uh, in in Pine Bush, but uh, that's not to say there isn't tales like that around. Um, uh, what what do you think? what is your best guess? And I don't mean just for the area that you're studying in particular, but hotspots of any nature. You know, I've asked this of people who studied Gulf Breeze, Pine Bush, um, you know, places out West that have, you know, very similar that become hotspots. What do you think is the root of that? Do you think it is in fact an environmental effect uh, which it certainly could be. I mean, it's, you know, we're all dealing with you know, the three-pound universe in our skulls, and certainly the environment's going to have a dramatic effect on perception, and is that what this is? Of course, if it's perception, why are we getting EVPs? Why are we getting photographs, video, et etc., et etc. Um, but for you, what makes a hotspot a hotspot? Um, you know, is it something with the surrounding area? the the geological makeup or is it something else that in fact does tie back to ancient times and this sort of thing?
2: I think these things happen all the time. Um, And I think that these pockets pop up all the time. Um, And I think it's a tree falling in the woods kind of concept. Mm -hmm. If, and, and what that popping is, I'm never, I don't think I'll ever be able to completely put my finger on, but I think it happens all the time. And then you are now in the realm of perception, like you were saying. And acceptance, you know the the amount of reports we get of people who say once they've acknowledged one paranormal thing, ghosts seem to find them. I think right. it's the same thing with these spots. Something pops up, and if it's perceived and it's um, m- uh, met with uh, open eyes, mm-hmm. then it starts to cycle and bring things in. Um, and so all of a sudden, it becomes this kind of self feeding, self cycling. Force, and I think for some reason, um, the one that is in the Bridgewater Triangle, the one that kind of extends into Rhode Island um, from Massachusetts, uh, kind of starts to tip its cap towards uh, Plymouth, towards parts of potentially parts of the the the, the mainland Cape. I think it. Uh, I think it all is at some point. This was embraced. Right. I think at some point this was used. At some point, there was fear, and at some point, there was happiness because of it. And what happened was, it started to grow and grow, and so now it draws so many people in that it continuously can support itself. Okay. Um, do I have time for a short story?
1: Yes, please, that? please, absolutely. Okay,
2: I was, uh, I was, I do work with a woman called Jackie Barrett, and I try not to do too much work for, with her because. Whenever we do anything together, bad stuff happens to me, <laughs> and the activity that I don't want increases, and so, you know, we work together selectively, and the first time I met her was actually at the, the um, Lucy Borden house in, in Fall River, and she was telling me a story about this person who had something unexplained in their basement, and this was a family house. His parents had died. He inherited the house, and he was living in this house, and there was weird noises smells, all this weird stuff coming from the basement. When she went down to the basement, she found the spirit of a little boy. And along with the spirit of the little boy, she found what she described as a demonic entity which was keeping the boy trapped. And in keeping this boy trapped, it was feeding off of the energy that it was creating in this basically ghost of this little boy that was there. So it was continuously haunting it, scaring it, feeding off it to get more energy so we could scare it more. Um, and the more she looked into it, when she kind of went upstairs and she began to describe what the boy looked like, he his face dropped. And she was like, well, what? And he said, when I was a little boy, my parents used to lock me in that basement. And I was so scared that I would step outside of myself and I would create this other person to talk to while I was there. And then that boy in return would like constantly turn on me and scare me. And so what you had was this boy who had very negative feelings, detaching himself and kind of putting the negative side to the, to the putting the negative parts of himself to the side. And then all of a sudden that attracting a demon who then kept that little boy alive, which was the spirit of a kid that was, the guy that was now living upstairs, just so he could feed off of it. And so it was this very complex relationship based on energy based on need and based on constant recognition that something is there that you don't want there and i think in a very large way that same kind of thing is happening in the Bridgewater triangle
1: yeah well i mean we talk about stranger than we can imagine i think that fits pretty well with that
0: yeah yeah what were you holding out for (laughs) yeah
1: yeah you could have just come on the show and said that and we could have said good (laughs) night
0: Uh, <laughs> well,
2: you know what? you'll have, you'll have to have, you'll have to have me back. You'll have to have me back, uh, sometime to, uh, to talk about, uh, Jackie Barrett, Ronnie DeFeo and the, uh, the, the dark spirits that won't seem to leave me alone now sometime.
1: Well, yeah, you're coming back. Trust me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, one last one for me, I do realize that, um, uh, you're not a statistician and, um, and maybe sociology is not necessarily your big thing here, but if you haven't done this, I'd be curious that when we have you back on if you might be able to find this out. The area that sits within the triangle, I would be very, very curious if you could find out what the how do you put this, what the career paths of working people in the area is, if you don't already know right. it. Do you know, do you know what Most of these people are, um, as far as career, like, is there an over-percentage of doctors? Is there an over-percentage of artists? Uh, That sort of thing. Uh,
2: Yeah, well, I I can tell you this. There's an over-percentage of mental health care workers because in that area, there's a ridiculous over-percentage of mental health care facilities.
1: Huh. So the overall career here is a crazy person. I mean
2: <laughs> or people who work with crazy people, yeah, I mean it is it's it's you know, and of course, keep in mind that many of these places, and that fits in with both the paranormal side and the cult side, uh, which we probably don't have time to fully explore this, but many of these towns were mill towns, mm-hmm. many of these towns were shipping towns, um and in kind of doing research after the book, I started looking at the paranormal activity in defunct uh defunct ports so if you take a place like Gloucester, Massachusetts mm-hmm. if you take a place like Fall River New Bedford which were at their time industrial centers Moby Dick is in this location that's, that's where they launch out of right? Okay. Um, you start to see that as these businesses fail the paranormal that existed there intensifies and the cult activity migrates to them as they start to fall huh. Um, so when, when I say I'm not a sociologist, I probably am not giving myself credit. I'm a folklorist. I'm right. a storyteller who looks at the bigger picture. And so I've seen these kinds of things in my research. I am kind of, to some degree, you know, as as anyone who does research, I like to hear a good EVP or I like to see a good reading and to see a, a picture that has something that I can't understand. But right. when I start to analyze stories and put it up against the history, and buttress it with what has happened in these cities over the long haul, I start to see those kind of connections. So I can tell you the answer to your question is that that there, there is definitely a direction of the towns in terms of their peaks and valleys and how that coincides with their paranormal activity and their use by cults.
1: Huh. Well, I lied when I said that was the last question because I got one more. Uh, okay,
2: that's all right. is uh, <laughs> not a great uh, way to start a relationship, always lying to me, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Uh I guess the other thing that tends to pop up with a lot of this stuff is is change and is uh uh discord, chaos. And even if you're talking about something as simple as an apartment building or a condominium building, yeah, I, I I'm I'm fairly sure that uh, George Hansen had told us that you tend to get more reports of paranormal paranormal activity out of an apartment building or a condominium versus a single family home. And so that leads me into a question about this area is how often are homes rolled over, how often are people moving in and out? Is it a waypoint for certain people to come there and and you know to to gain a foothold in their career and then to move off and to go elsewhere or are there families that have lived there for generation after generation? Uh, and does that make up the majority of the area?
2: I think if you're talking about some of the major areas and some of the major hot areas, mm. you're talking about generational families. Mm, okay. Um, you're talking about people who establish roots, stay in the community, um, and pass these things down. Okay. Um, so you have, you know, what would be in you know, a non, uh, derogatory way townies in a mm. lot of these areas. Right. Um, then of course you have places like Rockton and Taunton, which are more kind of mobile and people are moving in and out of them. Um, but you know, I don't I've never seen a an apartment complex in Freetown. Oh, okay. Um it's but you say, but you say the really
1: yeah, but you say the really hot areas are multi generational families living there. Yeah. As opposed to as opposed Freetown. to the, the in and out areas are less active then?
2: Yeah, more active, hmm. <laughs> more active by comparison to the towns next to them, but okay. less in comparison to the to these other areas. To so the
1: yeah. overall, okay, very good. I mean, Rehoboth
2: is the kind of Rehoboth is the kind of area where you raise your family and then they move across town. Um, oh, okay. Freetown is like that. Fall River, New Bedford, those are very active areas, but those are very uh, mobile places as well. They have mm-hmm. a, a constantly shifting demographic and yet they're still really, really active, and often the spark for things that happen in fall in, in Freetown. Kind of a mixed bag. I guess the answer to your question is there is no pattern.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Jeremy?
0: I don't even know that I can form a question out of this yet, and so I might just have to wait until the after chat, but I'll give it a try. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm pretty dumb when it comes to uh, science and math, and I've heard the theory of light being both a particle and a wave, or, you know, particle-wave duality making up all particle waves. But I had never really understood the, uh, the double-slit experiment until the other night. Uh, I watched, um, I don't remember his name, Thomas something, I think, uh, who wrote My Big Toe, which stands for Theory of Everything. So watching this lecture by him, uh, I didn't actually get to his theory of everything, but I got through his explanation of the double-slit experiment, and it is now ingrained in my brain and it just strikes me in in what you're saying about that interplay that that the person who goes in blind is actually going to see more uh than the person who goes right. in expecting something and i wonder if that's not is there not a a clue here in basic physics that that the observation of something solidifies it makes it a particle uh that there are these for whatever reason maybe there are these sort of wave waves of Let's say negative energy for whatever reason, maybe in the geology, and maybe they get imprinted by a war or by deaths or something. They get imprinted with an image of its own, and then that sort of projects. And if you if you see it originally, then it's there. <laughs> then it be you know the more people who see it, it becomes this permanent fixture. But then this sort of paradoxical twist that. That because that's true, people go in expecting to see it, and then when they go in expecting to see it, they don't see it, because you still need that innocence of no expectation for the wave to become particle uh, somewhere in there. I mean, does that – something like that sound right? I mean, is this what we're talking about? Some some sort of interplay between perception uh, and energy that creates an image uh, that works that way? I mean, does that make sense to you? Or was I just right. babbling I think- for a minute? <laughs> No, not at all. I, I, <laughs> you were, but that was great.
2: Um, um, I think that there is a um, there's a definite relationship that exists between phenomena and the observer, and I think that people mold what they see, it could potentially influence what they see based on their filters, um, and I think that paranormal activity is all around us and is missed and is slipped because we don't want to perceive it. We're too we're too busy to perceive it. Um, we don't have the right equipment to perceive it. Um, one of the one of the reasons why there might be a increase of activity um, is not only because people are looking, but because our technology is kind of uh, expanding the scope of what we can see and definitely what we can hear. Um, cameras are becoming you know more inclusive to the they've gone they've gone beyond the, the visual range what you can see with your eye. A camera can capture more than your eye can, and it can capture more than a camera could years ago. That openness, even if you don't want yourself to be open, um, I think helps to control the existence of activity, the existence of what's creating the activity, I should say. And so these things are always here and always will be here, and understanding and, and acceptance aside, they're going to continue to pop their head out. And then when the, when something happens that people can then perceive it and they form an idea about it, um, more things that are looking to be perceived find their way in and become part of the normal understanding of the person who's experiencing them mm-hmm. and then kind of conversely develop into different manifestations. So a Ouija board is a great example and a very kind of um, manipulative example of spirits that may exist that always want to be exactly what you're looking for at that moment Um, because their nature might be we just want to talk for a while and slash or use your energy. And so it's always someone who's committed a suicide. It's always someone famous. It's always someone who's buried in your backyard that you need to go and dig them up because that's engaging enough to keep you there. And so that's a very kind of surface example of this idea that the perceiver helps to mold the ghost. At the same time, the ghost is kind of of changing their understanding of it.
0: Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it does. I guess guess in my example, I'm I'm thinking of, you know, energy. There's this nebulous thing called energy, that in these areas for whatever reason let's say it's negative uh so that would be like a projector and then there's a war or there's a suicide or there's a whatever uh that happens in that area and it gets imprinted and so that would be like adding film to the projector and so then a viewer comes in and sees this film being played out and and that becomes sort of a physical reality at least in the sense that they can see it uh but then if you go in with the expectation of seeing it you don't for whatever you know you don't see it because you need because that expectation becomes the block the expectation becomes the thing that gets in the way of the free form energy uh becoming the particle you've already got the particle in mind you've already got the visual in mind so it's not going to be able to appear because you've got that visual ready to go i i i don't well, know if that makes a, sense but I'm i mean regretting- it's almost Buddhist very solid f- physics or something. Yeah, i have a
2: very solid <laughs> example of that. I, I, I'm working with this family who's having, beyond a doubt, the most extreme paranormal experiences that I've ever heard of in my life. I mean, this is, this is one of those things where if they ever gave me permission just to do a book on their house, which I don't think it would ever happen, um, it, w- it, w- it would be a bestseller. I mean, it, this is crazy, real stuff. And the people involved are so genuine and so ridiculously good people that you're left shaking your head as to why this is happening to them. And early on in their experiences, which have been going on for a little over a year now, they brought in the paranormal group because they didn't know what else to do. So they brought in a paranormal group, and they were, because they'd be experiencing, probably would be close to, you know, poltergeist-type experiences. And they the group set up their base camp. Um, I'm not going to say the name of the group because they're actually pretty popular. They, were, they set up their cameras upstairs where some of the activity had happened. And they were leaving everything rolling. They were taking their readings. And so she was like, okay, I'm going downstairs, and I'm getting out of the house. I'm just going to go on the porch. And so she's out on the porch, and she's watching. This is what actually brought her to my doorstep. She's watching this tall, dark figure walk through her living room with a wudgie acting almost like a pet behind it. And so, as it goes kind of across her field of vision, and into another room, she runs through the house, goes upstairs, tells the group, there's something downstairs. You have to go right now. And and they basically, their response was, well, we're taking readings right now. We might get around to that later. We're investigating what we think to be the hotspot. And she's like, okay, dude, there's like a tall, dark figure and a monster in my living room. Go down there. And they're well, you know, I mean, let's do this first. We want to do this in a very organized and and way and then we'll work our way down there. Um they never actually ended up getting down there and 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 as they're investigating, she's continuing to see these flashes of light and these kind of creatures in her backyard and she's like, It's out there. Stop looking at your at your your EMF meter. It's out there. If you look, it's right there. Um and so sometimes I think People who look for the paranormal can be so um, dead set on looking at it a a certain way and b in a certain place that they really don't see you know our, pun you know pun, is, pun intended they don't see the the forest for the trees.
0: Wow!
1: And, and Jeremy, how similar does that sound to your friend that came on the show to talk about? I think Phil and Brogno's area. Am I right? Where he saw the little people. And then all of a sudden there was the big dude, for lack of a better word, was a ring wraith.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, that I wasn't mean, uh Phil and Brogno country, but yeah, we he told the story while we were out in Philembrogno country. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I mean Yeah,
2: and that's that's the that's the unholy trinity, I like to call it, of the puck wedgies that exist. They they're the puck wedgies these Tai Pai which are these bursts of light, these orbs, and then some large dark figure which seems to kind of command them in some way.
0: Wow. Well, see, that's that's fascinating. Uh, my friend's name is Harold Egeln. That's it. Uh, and he, yeah, he had seen what he described as gnomes, <laughs> like from Snow White or something, you know, dwarves, gnomes, whatever they were. Like, hi-ho, like going to work, uh, I think in somewhere in New Jersey. And... <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then there was, I don't remember, I don't remember what the sequence of events was, but essentially, then there was some sort of, like, yeah, giant ring wraith type thing on a horse, right? Yeah. Who sort of warned him off, and he ran. He, he booked it out of there, um, but he had the feeling that this was some sort of guardian, uh, but geez, yeah, now this is all starting to sound all too familiar. Yeah. That's, that's Yeah, Yeah, I
2: mean, and aside from the horse, I mean, that's what I've really heard associated with these, is People see all three of those things. When I start to like ask people if they've had an experience, if they've had an experience. Most times, they've seen either all three of those things, or two things in conjunction with each other, and then another two things in conjunction with each other. So they've experienced all three of those, but only two at the same time. Um, and that's when I start to say, "Okay, well, that fits in with the other Pugwudgie experiences that other people have said."
0: Wow!
1: This all yeah. sounds like a bad Led Zeppelin cover. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. Well, Chris, uh, we could probably talk to you for another couple of hours, so oh, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force you off the phone for your own good. Uh, but we definitely would love to have you back on to talk more shop here. Um, but thank you for coming on. The book is Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. And what is your website again and your organization where people can contact you?
2: Um well, my main website is uh, Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, so that's www.masscrossroads.com, and through there you can kind of, uh, there's a link to all my other sites, uh, Spooky South Coast, the radio show I work with, uh, Ghost Village, I'm the news editor uh, for that website, as well as some of my blogs on, on urban legends and the like, uh, called Tripping on Legends, which you all can kind of get to once you get to the crossroads, you can pick a path.
0: Great. Well, thank you again, ladies and gentlemen, Christopher Balzano.
1: Yay! Thank you, Chris.
2: Thank you for having me. This is Phil and Broadnell, paranormal investigator and scientist. Sometimes you're
0: listening to Jeff and Jeremy on Paranormal.
2: <laughs> now my car is completely dead. So, coincidence? I'll let the audience decide. So. <laughs> wow!
1: Happy birthday. <laughs> oh,
0: wow. I'm sorry. So it,
2: I, I know you guys said you guys said you were in contact with Tim Benal, right? Yeah. But yeah, you, if you talk to him, you say you know, like that. You, you interviewed me on the phone. Tell him, dude, you real? His car, his car stalled while we were talking. to him. <laughs> Are you going to be his able to get out of weekend, there? But,
0: I mean, how are you? What are you going to do? How are you going to get home?
2: Well, uh, that's that's a that's a story for when I hang up with you. That I'll have to tackle. But <laughs> would,
0: you, would you like us to
1: send you a car? I mean, can we send a car to get you? Oh wait, we don't uh, have a budget for that.
2: <laughs> I was going to say, except for the fact that I'm in Fort Myers, Florida, that would be absolutely perfect. <laughs>
0: Wow. All right. Well, we should let you go so you can uh, get home somehow. <laughs>
2: All right. Well, I'll try to get home at least. Yeah, thanks.
0: <laughs> All right. Thank you again. All right. Well,
2: have okay. a wonderful night, guys. Thanks you for too. having me on.
0: Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. So the Jeff. So the Jer. Puck eh? Yeah, Puck Now, what is it that you have against the Puck Uh
1: The name, Strictly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: They're coming after you, dude. They're going to look in your window. I have a
1: feeling they're already here, but that's
0: okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll get into that in a second. But don't you find (laughs) it uh, odd that um, that so many of these things have just not just, I I don't know, so many cross features, you know? Yeah. Such as the thing following you home and staring at you in your window. There's always something weird about eyes, blah, blah, blah. I found myself, um, in reading the book, interested that I did not not believe the testimonies of the zombies in just reading these women who had encountered whatever. Right. Um, But it, you know, that stuff could very well be, um, as he points out in the book, homeless people, mentally ill people, who knows?
1: Yeah. Uh, Or, or it could be the cultural filter of the time or the
0: cultural, yeah. Or the cultural filter of the time or the fact, or it could be real zombies, uh, a la Santeria. Right. You know, drugged people put in graves and dug up or whatever.
1: Yeah. By way of "Serpent in the Rainbow" type thing, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh. So, but let's get back to the puck wedgie. (laughs) You have them at your home, do you not? No. Uh. No. I. I had uh,
1: the. And when was the show we did with where we talked about fairies? How long ago was that? I don't know. It's been a while. I mean, I know it's been a while, and I know that we, when we did talk about it, we certainly didn't treat it with any kind of seriousness. Uh, or perhaps we did a little bit, but you know, by and large, you know, it was like fairies, you
0: know, whatever.
1: I remember it was springtime. I do remember that. This is back lovely in,
0: in springtime. Are right. you? Thanks for that. Yeah, that was for Allison.
1: As a matter of fact, this is uh, April fifteenth. This is a day after my birthday of two thousand ten.
0: Uh, Happy birthday!
1: We did that on the phone, please.
0: That Um, that also was for Allison. Alligator on the message board.
1: That's Allie.
0: She loves it when I sing. Wow. Shut up. Anyway. Just let it happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) April 2010, I had put down uh, some stuff on the front lawn. Uh, Not long before we had done this show about the, the fairies, gnomes, that sort of thing. And, um, I, we had put down some, some grass seed, but this grass seed came with a, like a paper pulp, uh, that surrounded the seed and basically kept it full of water at all times. And you, you only knew when to water this. I mean, anybody who's planted grass knows what a, a bastard it is to grow grass on a lawn. So we had, uh, um, some bare spots, uh, right up towards the front end of the house and, um, uh, and so we put this this great stuff down because essentially it told you when to water it by virtue of the color so I had watered it uh, the night before and uh, we did the show came home the next day, watered it again and I noticed that uh, uh, Lisa had remarked that she had thought there might have been an animal outside and uh, I, I I didn't think very much about it and then I think my son came down and said there was something on the window earlier when he had gotten home from school. And so I thought that was a little weird. And uh and we did have
0: what kind that of an it's instance. There's something on the window.
1: Right. Something
0: uh, what, something what?
1: Uh just like a like a tapping, like a, like a I don't know, like we have a uh I don't know, I guess it's it's more or less like a, a window sill that extends out from the house underneath the windows. It's covered by um, like an aluminum siding type thing. It's framed within that aluminum siding. And so it was kind of like a scrapey sound on there of something tapping around. And um, I would say, you know, in hindsight, to think about it back then, it was uh, around about the time where we were popping light bulbs like crazy, um, you know, light bulbs burning out, uh, a lot of weird electrical things. The computer was acting up. Our internet was was acting up. Um we have some lights outside that are basically like garden lights that are wired. They're hardwired lights that shine up on the side of the house, and um, those I thought weird because I was actually sitting here one night playing guitar, and uh, my window faces that direction of the house, and I saw one of the lights go out. When I went out to check it, it had literally been unscrewed. It was not burned out. It had been unscrewed more than a couple of turns. This was not like a possible connectivity. Uh, thing that happens every time. I personally put them in, and I put them in tight. So we had all this stuff going on, and uh, and then Jeremy and I in the process were doing this show about uh, gnomes and that sort of thing. We're kind of making light of it, and I have to say, I didn't put a whole lot of credence in it at all. Uh, although if I did, uh, the only way I could kind of see that is, like we've talked about, a cultural filter or as you believe so shall it be, that type of thing, uh, that the perhaps it's a manifestation of you know the collective or what have you. So that morning I went out to the car and I noticed that someone had stomped all over the pulp that, uh, that, 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 that covers the grass seed that was put down. There were visible footprints in this pulp. And immediately I went into my son. I said, what the hell did you walk all over my grass for? He said, I haven't been out. I I didn't walk on your grass. Now, it wasn't that way when I came home. However, it was that way the next morning, and I had not certainly done it. And the pulp's very fluffy. Um, Now it's mashed down. And so I start looking around. thinking, well, if I find his boot print in it, then I'll know damn well it was him. So I looked around. There was no boot print at all. Just mashed down areas. And in one particular spot where it was still a little puffy, there were four very clean cut, down to the earth footprints. And that's the only way I can put it. They were no more than an inch and a half to an inch and three quarter across, and probably a little bit less than that, um, you know, vertically. And uh, I took a picture of them, and they are a rounded heel and four very triangular pointed toes. And the best one that I got, I got a really good picture of. I will put it on the message board. And I called Jeremy about it, and I said, you know, look, look, look up on the net for me. Just look up, you know whatever what, what what and what, do you remember what the, what it was called jeremy
0: uh tree snuffler
1: yes <laughs> <laughs> It's
0: ridiculous
1: <laughs> and these things and he describes to me before i've even shown him the picture before i've even described the footprint i just said there's little footprints out front uh you know in my mulch and there's you know w- there's been a couple of weird things around the house, and then there's the scraping at the that side of the window in the house and a little noise. And now my stuff's all smushed, and now I've got these footprints. And he reads the description to me, and the description was that the footprint or the foot was three distinct pointed uh, triangular toes with a rounded heel. And I was like, there's no way I've got fucking fairies in the woods next well, to I think house.
0: you told me to look up fairy, right? And so I was looking up I think it
1: was a like fairy or kind of, something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I
0: looked, and there were a whole bunch of, there was like a list of all these different types and one of them was the tree snuffler and that right, closely right. resembled or exactly resembled <laughs> what's in your yard.
1: It's ridiculous. Um, and I, you know, I did nuisance trapping for the state of Maryland for a while. I know what raccoon and rabbit and squirrel and Uh, dog and all that. I know what all that looks like. And this is... I mean, this is the one that I'm going to post a picture of. Um, I mean, I think you can see a couple in the photograph, but there's one very, very pronounced clear-cut, almost like a cookie cutter. Uh, Because what the pulp does, the paper, when you... uh, It it essentially... Yes, it forms a barrier over top of the seed, but it also houses the seed. And... uh, with the pounding of the sun, uh, it'll actually, the pulp will start to puff up, like I said, and rise like, almost like bread. And it creates a space between the ground and the pulp, almost like a hot area where you'd get a lot of humidity for a germination of a seed. And that's what this stuff does. So whatever did this, uh, stepped on that pulp hard enough to actually mash it down firmly. Um, and the pulp being, uh, almost clay-like. Like if you were to touch it with your finger, you would think clay. Or um, uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, anybody who's touched a, a days-old wet newspaper knows what I mean. It's mushy. It's got a mush to it. So it's like oatmeal. That sort of texture to it, clay-like though. And there it is. Um, you know, do I think I've got tree snufflers? I don't. I don't. I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but do you think you have pukwudgie?
1: I don't know what the hell it is, but you know. Needless to say, I haven't. There's been no more footprints. I, you know, we've got bare spots in the lawn this year. I'm going to try and fill in again. But these footprints were really unusual, and and just I guess the synchronicity of us talking about elves, fairies, gnomes, such. You know, it was a little weird to find these little bitty footprints all over this pulp grass seed. So I, I don't know. It just struck me a lot of weird. So it's a little. Interesting anecdotal tale but there you go
0: very nice i like that
1: <laughs> <laughs> i ascribe no meaning to it whatsoever other than it's a little weird <laughs> yeah. so anyway that picture will be up on our message board
0: uh on the show thread <laughs> um i don't have anything like that
1: really you don't have fairies in new york city
0: uh well i
1: think you do <laughs>
0: No, no. I don't have anything like that. Not in my, not in my yard. Uh because I don't have a yard.
1: Oh, well that would that would be the reason.
0: So what do you think is going on in a place like this? I keep again, I'm I'm going back in my head and thinking over this double slit experiment that proves oh. that particle wave duality is the foundation of existence and that what we perceive is what's going to be there or whatever. We control reality or whatever. I mean, I think that's a bit too far, but it does show that if you blast a photon through the slits, depending on where you observe it or if you observe it at all, is what it's going to take the form of. Uh, and when. (laughs) So, if you set up an observation at the slit that you're blasting a photon through, it will be a particle all the way through. If you set it up at the end designation, uh, then it will be a wave, and then form into a particle and hit that designation. If you don't observe it at all, then what? uh, The world collapses? I I don't remember. (laughs) I I think it's also a wave into a particle. Um, So, If you extrapolate out, I was just thinking, you know, if you have a consciousness, say you have a patch of land that is in and of itself conscious or there's a conscious, bodiless, formless intelligence residing there for whatever reason, how would you detect it? Would you feel it? Is that what's happening? Are people feeling an emotion of the consciousness that is enveloping them when they step into that area? And then... How might that consciousness be expressed? Well, would it be expressed – I mean how would you – outside of an emotional reaction to it that you don't understand and you suddenly feel differently and don't don't know where that's coming from, what would you see? How would you see – because this conscious, and consciousness is intelligence, right? And so if there's an intelligence there, how might it be <laughs> – I, I don't know if communicating with you is the right term, but how might it be expressing itself, let's say – uh and and how might you pick that up i don't know it just seems like maybe there's something in there about these deaths or these um whatever these occurrences are if they match up maybe with the emotion (laughs) of of this place that they imprint it and so that that's what you end up seeing you see an imprint of something that happened in the past um because you've got to see something right so what if it was speaking? I mean, it, it's kind of a screwed up thing. It's like, what if this thing was speaking? What if you have this, let's call it a, an energy <laughs> that is alive in an area of woods and you enter its field and it speaks to you, how would that happen? Uh, yeah. How would it make itself known to you other than you just having this sick feeling or feeling mm-hmm. suddenly guilty or sad or whatever?
1: Right.
0: I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It just seems like it would, it might just take from whatever the hell is imprinted on it and try to project that at you. And if you're not, if you're not looking for it, then you see it.
1: (laughs) Right. Right.
0: I don't know. And if you are looking for it because so many people have seen it and then suddenly becomes a collective story that everyone's going to see this. And so if you are waiting for it, then you don't see it because you're dealing with an energy that is not a particle, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so I don't know something about, uh trying to observe it is the thing that gets in the way just like with the particle you know wave duality the thing that the thing that gets in the way is observing it once you focus on it and once you look directly at it then it becomes this other thing it becomes something it's not i don't know some something in there i mean it's i know again i'm rambling about this and i don't have it fully formed and i and i'll bet you dimes to dollars that john spring or riot fish on the message boards have probably already said this a thousand times better than i have and it just went over my head but i think somewhere in there must be what's going on yeah
1: well i mean you know first of all i'd like to see geologically what's different there as opposed to a surrounding area i mean i'm always going to go back to um what's different physically about it is there anything differently physically about the place than anything surrounding it and then i'm going to look at the people i mean history would be good to look at Because he said, you know, the American Indians had problems there. Uh, Well, what sort of problems uh, other than plain old bad luck? And is that possibly where this notion of this is not a good area or this area has a negative vibe to it, is that where that originated? And therefore, everything sprung forth from that. And so, as time went on, as people expected... Or didn't expect, but were leery or wary of the area. Did they get exactly what they were focused upon, which was bad things happening? You know, uh, I I don't I don't know. I I, I often question why these hotspots uh, form, and and like Jacques Fillet, I wonder: Can you actually create something like this? I mean, can you create a Skinwalker Ranch, a Marley Woods, a Gulf Breeze, Florida, a Pine Bush, New York? It's a damn good question, but the question, I mean, where do you start? Well,
0: how would you know if you can't observe it? I mean, if the whole thing, if it does follow physics in that the second you start to measure it, it Uh disappears, then how would you go about doing that? I mean, maybe the clue is when uh, Chris said that um, there was that pile of rocks that had a lot of anomalous activity around it, but it was just a man-made pile of rocks because people's... What, what was it built into the asphalt or built into the road? Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and people's GPSs and stuff started going haywire. So they dug it up and just sort of yeah hauled it off. So something about the quality of that rock apparently is, is a little uh, weird. Yeah. It's weird.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would like to see, you know, if anybody out there listening has investigated this place, any ghost groups or paranormal groups, and you've gotten visual data, I would like to see it. Um, and I would like to hear EVPs from there. I would like to see what is the quality difference in that sort of thing. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I just I don't know what to make of places like this other than, you know, I go back to Golfrees again and say, you know, did golfrees happen because so many people showed up to see it? Uh, and there is a completely different story. When people showed up to see it, it manifested more. And so I don't think that's a hard and fast rule that once you acknowledge it or once you try to measure it, it disappears. I think in some cases it can have uh, an opposite effect in that, you know, the more you give, the more you get. So well, it's that sort of okay, thing. Okay, but that's I mean, assuming
0: that these are the same thing. That's one assumption. But then the other Yeah, assumption, I mean, yeah, that, that's a that big assumption,
1: same, you know, to assume it's the same thing. It probably isn't. But
0: The other workaround is that you're not seeing the same thing over and over again. Well, I guess in Gulf Breeze you are, right? But... But in these um. sorts of places, I mean, people are seeing all sorts of stuff. It's not mm-hmm. like anyone's having an ongoing dialogue with the redheaded hitchhiker.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
0: So it's it's as if, you know, the thing attracts you, but then it has to pop different stuff at you. Uh. Because, again, once you think you know what it is, once you've focused that lens on it, uh, right. it's got to be something else. Huh. I mean, this is sort of what we've been seeing all along, anyway,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, wouldn't it be interesting to to try and start an area up like this and not measure it yourself, but rather, you know, if you've got a, let's say, you've got a field with a a community built kind of around the field, where the field ends up being everyone's backyard or something like that, and you, you, you know, maybe you reside in one of the homes there, and you're um, the catalyst for this thing getting started, whatever you, however you would start it or however you would try to enact some kind of property like that. And instead of measuring it yourself, you, you start talking to the neighbors and asking them. I mean, that would be um, someone who isn't looking for it, but may notice it in a fleeting thing, which often this stuff is a fleeting thing anyway. Um, and I was thinking earlier when you were talking about that, you know, how would you measure it? The minute you try to measure it, it leaves, or it doesn't manifest, or what you expect is not what you get. In fact, you may get nothing. Um, I, I think <laughs> I think it'd be really interesting to have almost like you'd have control samples of you know a physical in- interaction with you know the unknown uh, environmental control samples that you would take from outside of that, and then you would just. You know, do whatever you're going to do to try to enact the phenomena or engage it and then talk to your neighbors and see what happens there. That would be curious. Hmm. Um, you know, I, think- I mean, I mean, you know, and even Jacques told us about that. He said, you know, we got some weird things, but nothing of the caliber of Skinwalker. Mm-hmm.
0: I find this orb thing intriguing New Thread for me anyway, because I haven't really paid much attention to it until... You know, you brought up the similarities of colors in the from these various investigators. Mm-hmm. And in this book, you know, he talks about white orbs and, you know, red orbs and all that. He talks about these golden orbs that seem to be trying to come up from the water and then go back down as if souls of people are being uh, drowned. You know, mm-hmm. trying to resurface and can't quite make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Pukwudgie... The legend of the Pukwudgie uh, is that they're magical and that their magic is in controlling light uh, and that they can create, for instance, animals out of light orbs
1: Hmm.
0: to try to trick trappers and things like that. Right. So what is – again, what is it about – what is it about light? What is it about these orbs that seems to be a through line whether you're talking about ghosts or Pukwudgie or even UFOs? uh, Yeah crop circle formations, you know, mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff. It, there, there are these orbs in the background. And then of course the orbs that most people think are orbs are like dusted mosquitoes and stuff. I mean, I just find that fascinating, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Like what do we do uh, with that?
1: I don't know. Study plasma, I guess.
0: <laughs> I guess, uh, except that does plasma, I mean, it would, would study plasma. How does one study plasma? Is, is plasma intelligent?
1: I don't I mean I think I would refer everybody to an uh, NARCAP's report on that as right. far as you know the lights and and uh, and plasma balls and that sort of I thing. I mean could
0: you catch a plasma ball and study it? Is that possible? Cuz I'm thinking about uh-huh. even you know your light on the hill where you get closer to it and then it just disappears. Right. Uh-huh. It doesn't seem to be there it's directional, you know all that stuff. I mean that's Yeah. Again, it's it sounds like it sounds like on the surface you should just be able to study it like any sort of amoeba
1: should be able around. to walk up to it. Yeah, yeah, but you can't. Yeah. No, no, I don't, I don't know. It's damn confusing. That's that's what I can say. I mean, yeah, as far as this triangle here that we've talked about tonight, I I would think that some of the reports you've you've got to kind of parse out as just what he said that it's. Uh, uh, somebody wanting to be involved or having a story or or maybe just being so primed for anything that anything that would happen, whether it be you know somebody across a hill with a flashlight out there for the same reasons that you are, and you see a light dancing across the field you 're going to run thinking it 's puckwudgy light uh, you know, and then you 've got a story to tell, so how much of it is that, how much of it is? Right is misperceptions. We don't know because everybody, you know, obviously with a place like that, where you've got everything under the paranormal umbrella going on, how primed are these people? And, you know, and and at that point, how many false reports would you get out of that place? I mean, we don't know this yet.
0: Well, here's the other thing that's interesting that I don't think we really covered on the show, but in the book talks about things like, uh, you know, how they're, um, Little sort of suburban legends about, you know, like the, the couple that commits suicide together. And right. so you always see them, you know, jumping off the cliff or the forlorn woman or whatever. Uh-huh. There, there's that type of thing happening here. Okay. Except that there's no legend around it. <laughs> wow. This isn't an area of those things. And yet those things started being reported. <laughs> so throw that into the mix. Yeah. Interesting.
1: That doesn't seem like communication to me i don 't know what does <laughs> I mean that's it right there, you know I mean that's it. it it's 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 throwing this stuff out that that just sounds like some kind of like you said earlier, some sort of consciousness that's trying to communicate what it's doing is drawing from everybody around it and saying, "Oh, you want this, oh, you want that uh, okay, I can do that, and what does that sound like, Jeremy,
0: right? Well, it's either doing that or, as I say, it's being imprinted in some way. Well, I guess that's the same thing because mm-hmm. maybe it's you could be imprinted with uh, – I mean imprinted. I'm just throwing out another nonsense concept here, right? Because what, <laughs> de- The death of people suddenly imprints this consciousness. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but maybe it does or or maybe it's imprinted. I guess the same thing is what we're talking about, right, which is being imprinted with um, people's expectations. I yeah. don't
1: know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lockgrave and Reservoir. I that place has always been. Uh, there's always been. Well, there's been one of two errors about it. The one error is that's the place to go have a field party. That's what that is. Cops patrol it, but you can see them coming. You can go way out on the peninsula and and you know drink two six packs of beer with your buddies and not worry about getting caught. That's you know. That's A, but B is there's murders there. There's a hell of a lot of accidents there. There's, um, you know, it's very windy roads uh, in spots where you could very easily see an out of control car uh, coming around the corner with a drunk driver. I mean that that sort of thing. And there's also, like I said, there's murders. There are people who have been disposed of in that area because. Who's gonna find him? Who's gonna look? Um, it's a reservoir. If we bury him somewhere in there, that's the place. And it is, I don't know, relatively close to Baltimore City. I mean, within 15, 20 minutes. And some of those, you know, the suburbia areas, it's certainly it's surrounded by those. So there's a lot going on there, and it's a it's a fairly large area. I mean, it takes you a while to drive through it uh, end to end. But you know, then there began to be uh, ghost sightings, and there began to be uFO sightings in there, and you know when you look back, you find well there 's been more than one uFO sighting in that place, and why and, and so i don 't know I mean on one hand, you can say it 's a rural area where if a murderer was going to dump a body that 's where they do it I mean we know this from statistics, this is where bodies are found in rural areas where people don 't go makes sense logistically <laughs> uh, on the other hand, we have the same thing with a lot of UFO sightings are in rural areas where there's not a lot of populace and they're seen by few people. So is that just coincidence or is that, is there a direct you know meaning behind that? Is there a definite connection between what the place is versus what is seen there? So I, you know, who, who knows? I mean, I think your thing about the, the land being somehow conscious is, um, is an interesting thought to me because, uh, the very idea that people are seeing memes <laughs> without a story just sounds like something is is uh is asking to be engaged or trying to throw something out that burning tell to say, I'm here, you know, there's there's no, nobody's done that here and but yet you're gonna see ghosts.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're gonna see Bigfoot, you're gonna see
1: Bigfoot, right. I mean, gnomes and all of that. I mean but the question i mean here's the question is the consciousness the puckwaji
0: <laughs> i don't know i don't know but I, there's something there's there's something that that seems i don't want to say right but maybe right about you've got this consciousness plunked down somewhere mm-hmm. and a person walks into it and the person becomes the thought of the consciousness
1: mm-hmm.
0: it because it envelops you right you're in it and now mm-hmm. it's got your thoughts and it's just sort of projecting them willy-nilly. your thoughts are based on your thoughts are would be based on your emotion, right? because the emotional reaction I mean what's the what would the emotional reaction be of walking into another field of consciousness? I would think it would be something gross, you know I, I think it would be un- unless that consciousness were actively trying to make you feel good or something, uh, I would think that that there, it would feel like a disturbance in you. Uh-huh. And that would come up as any sort of negative emotion, yeah. Any of several negative emotions. I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud. Oh, I mean,
1: here. you could go the gambit. You could say there's a portal there, which is you know we often hear this. There's a vortex there, and it, and the veil is thin in this area, and that's why we have pukwudgie, and that's why we have uh, ringwraiths, and uh, <laughs> and all of that. I mean, it, and and this is this is why people see these things. I mean, all sorts of weirdness surrounds vortexes and. Uh, and all of that, but that, that to me is just another dead end answer. I mean, we don't—we don't know. And—and and you can point out that this, whatever we're calling a consciousness, may not be a consciousness at all. It could be, uh, I, I mean, for lack of a better word, it could be something completely natural and environmental that may not be conscious at all. But it's basically a field, uh, a, a field of some sort that um, is not conscious, but. Is doing exactly what you are saying is pulling out and manifesting, yeah. just by virtue of what it is, of which we don't know what it is. So, uh, yeah,
0: I would think that if you know the portal thing is an attractive idea, but then I get stuck at how come nothing's been trapped here? How come there aren't massive reports of people being trapped there? You know, just right. disappearing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You could say there are missing persons reports and all that, but I mean, there is nothing conclusively. I saw Dave disappear, and that was it.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? Right, right.
0: Uh, you know, wow. the, wraiths, the wraiths aren't, you know, galloping <laughs> into the cities at any point.
1: Right, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, we've thrown out more abstracts than de Kooning tonight.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Dennis Miller. You're welcome. <laughs> and de Kooning. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that was my like Dennis Miller.
1: Pretty great, Jer. Thank
0: you. Yeah, I'll be here all week. I'll be here all lifetime. Uh well, is that the sign that we should wrap this up? I think so. (laughs) All right, good. Another fascinating show. Another uh, personal disappointment uh, in me for Jeff. Uh, I'm sorry. What? (laughs) I'm just saying you're personally disappointed with me. That's
1: all. No, why would I be? Why would I be disappointed?
0: Yeah, because I did the Dennis Miller joke. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, you're right. (laughs) 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 Thanks
1: for joining us, everybody.
0: Do we have anything else? Is that it? I don't believe so. All right, good.
1: I think we're pretty much tapped out for the week.
0: All right. Sweet dreams, Paratopia. Good night, all. Once again, Jeff and I would like to thank Christopher Balzano for coming on the show and having his car stall in the middle of nowhere. Uh, he was actually recording from his car from some parking lot somewhere because he thought maybe his home would be uh, too noisy night, so hopefully he's not trapped in the middle of nowhere. I haven't heard from him since, and uh, neither is Jeff, but we assume he's okay. Anyway, if you're alive and you're listening, Christopher, thank you again. And for everyone else, please learn more about him and his work at www.masscrossroads.com Take care.